0: Oh, great
1: show everybody an actual show show an actual show um damn i'm happy to be back man i'm happy to be back in the new york studio um a lot of stuff been going on i'll update everybody about my leg in a minute um but i got a number of phenomenal stories today um there's an article in the new york times about how the democrats are not keeping their base what a surprise you let us down repeatedly, and then you don't get us. Wow. Um, I also have Tulsi Gabbard went full Ronald Reagan. We'll talk about that. Um, the Women's March had the cringiest tweet of all time. We'll talk about that. Rihanna Joy Gray and Ben Jealous fought over defund the police. That's a wonderful segment, very substantive, that we'll discuss. Hillary Clinton came out of the wilderness to uh, remind us how terrible she is. And uh, I got a lot more, man. I got a lot more. It's going to be a great show. Sit back, relax, take it easy, soak it in, and uh, let's have some fun. So let me start for everybody with uh, an update on my leg. So I want to give everybody a quick update on my gimp-ass leg. Um, For those of you who didn't see the previous segment, uh, I think it's titled something like... um, Kyle's seven-hour visit to the ER details the horrors of U.S. healthcare, something to that effect. Um, I was playing tennis with Crystal, and I uh, kind of heard like a pop, and it felt like somebody hit the back of my leg with something. And I turned around, and I was like, what, the, what just hit me? I literally turned around and thought something hit me. Um, and when I realized nothing was there, I was like, uh-oh. And so uh, since it, I heard like a pop, and uh, since it felt like something hit me, I knew that something bad had happened in my calf. Um, and so I gave it, like, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes and iced it and see, saw where I was at. And I basically couldn't use my right leg at all. And so I thought, well, this isn't good. I might need surgery to, like, repair something where there's a rupture. Now, I didn't know at the time what it was. I do not know knee-related, Achilles-related, uh, something in the calf, some tendon in the calf, some... The some muscle in the calf. I don't, I didn't know what it was because I'm not a doctor, but all I knew was if I can't put any pressure on my right leg, um, this might require surgery. And so I went to the hospital. Yeah, again, check out the other segment. I'm not gonna go through all the details. I was there for seven hours, uh, saw some real eye-opening things, got nothing out of the seven-hour visit except an x-ray. An x-ray looks at bone when we knew it wasn't a bone issue, but apparently there's a process. You have to get an x-ray before you get an MRI or an ultrasound, which is what I actually needed for the leg. Um, so basically, I was out of commission for uh, a long time there. I was stuck in, in Washington, D.C., and um, what happened was after the initial visit to the hospital, um, figured it's still the right thing to do to get it looked at by an expert, a professional, a doctor, and so I made a doctor's appointment in Washington, D.C. Now, this place I went to is actually not bad. I've been there once before one of few like medical places in the country and in my life that I've been to where I was like, this isn't all terrible. They seem to be more hands-on than other medical related things that I've been to. And so I went there, had an appointment. The doctor kind of was able to rule out Achilles, rule out knee stuff, definitely said something internal in the calf. But this doctor wasn't a, a sports specialist and this doctor wasn't an orthopedist. And so this doctor said, look, I'll, I'll talk to the We have a sports specialist that's here. I'll talk to this person for you and try to get you some more information. And um, what happened was I got a referral to go to an ultrasound place because for this particular industry, uh, injury, you need uh, an ultrasound. So they set up, they gave me a referral. I set up an ultrasound appointment. We're probably on week two and a half now or two, something like that. And I I show up, and they're like, oh, we don't have the – particular kind of ultrasound machine that we need in order to do your calf i needed like a what's it called a musculoskeletal ultrasound and they're like we don't have that kind here so then i'm like all right well what the fuck do i do now now at that point two weeks in it had already started getting a little better so i went from like being unable to put any weight on that right leg to being able to put my right toe down and as long as my heel was very elevated i was fine then slowly over time day by day that heel started coming down more and more to the ground which showed me that there's some healing going on there internally. And I had been icing it relentlessly, elevating it relentlessly. I wear a compressor now on it all the time. I got one on right now as I'm talking to you guys. So I'm basically doing everything that like a layman thinks you're supposed to do. Um, I was walking with a crutch for a while just trying to do right by the leg, and the heel kept coming down and down. And then eventually I was able to develop like a, a decent limp, so you know i I can look somewhat normal limping with my right toe on the ground and my and my left foot normal and uh, so uh, you know I decided i, I what am I going to do i'm going to make another appointment now the next time I could get to another appointment even is like two weeks from now, and so maybe two weeks from now i won 't even be at the place where I need an orthopedist or I need an ultrasound of the leg or an MRI or whatever and so um but just to be on the safe side. I did get a referral to an orthopedist. We called up to make an appointment. And then they go, oh, we don't take your insurance. (laughs) So uh, I just, I'm I'm explaining, I'm explaining this to everybody to really put in perspective what it's like in this country healthcare-wise. And I'm, and I'm somebody of relative means. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not poor. I'm, I'm okay. And got absolutely nothing at the hospital. Got uh, a doctor's appointment that gave me a referral to a place for an ultrasound where they didn't even have the machine I needed. Then I got a referral to an orthopedist. The orthopedist says we don't take your insurance. So I'm on what? Four attempts at getting something solved with the leg and the entire time I'm on my own. And literally the most helpful stuff that there's been has been Googling and reading and trying to be very precise about where I feel the pain and trying my best to navigate through everything with my own research. Now, beyond that also, so I finally got to the place where I'm able to drive. Uh, now, it's a, li- it's a little difficult because I have to sort of move my whole leg as opposed to just sort of easily moving my foot right to left, you know? Um, and four hour, four and a half hour drive um, after an injury, by an hour like two or three, you do get, your leg gets a little tired. But, um, so I was able to get back to New York and I went and ate dinner with my mom. Now, my mom uh, is a physical therapist, and she's been for years. And she actually has, is the most helpful now. So I went all these different places. I owe thousands of dollars. I got nothing for it. And now the, the most helpful stuff I ever did was just Google and read on my own to get answers and then go see my mom, who was like, uh, okay, look, here's the stretch. And what she told me, just to sum up what she told me, she said, um, so I have to stop limping. Because if I keep limping, the leg is going to heal in a position where I just limp now. You know. And so you want to push your limits a little bit. Don't feel a lot of pain, but push your limits a little bit and do this stretch where I take a towel and put it on my, t- lay down, put my leg out straight, put it on my toe and pull back because I've got to get my foot into what's called dorsiflexion. Right now I can't. I could do a 90-degree angle with my foot, but I can't go 10 or 15 degrees beyond that. And so my mom said I have to do that all the time. Um, and I have to basically train my foot to get back on the ground normal. And she said she'd rather see me walk and shuffle like an 80-year-old man than limp fast. And so she gave me a bunch of stretches to do. She gave me a regimen. She says, you know, in the morning, heat it, do your stretches. At night, if it's sore, ice it, and just do that until, until you're back, you know, fully functional. And I just find it it's so it's, – it's a – terrifying microcosm of our healthcare care system, isn't it, that I tried four different avenues to get answers, all of them got basically nothing, and my best bet was like, okay, I guess my mom will help me, and I will Google and research on my own. That's terrifying. And then, by the way, a little cherry on top is now with this new COVID variant, which, by the way, the new evidence that's out, that's out suggests that it's not any worse than the other COVID variants in terms of the sickness that you get. It's more transmissible, but not necessarily worse in terms of the symptoms. Um, because of that new COVID variant, the governor of New York said, um, we're declaring a state of emergency, basically preemptively. And so if you have any procedures that are like non-emergencies, they're postponed. And so even if I wanted to now go to some doctor and and get something done, it's like, can I even really do that? I don't know. It seems like it's less likely because now all the onus is back on COVID. So by the way, everybody get fucking vaccinated because that was one of the problems when I went to the hospital in Virginia. It was like anybody who could retire did retire because the pandemic wore them thin. And then of the COVID patients who were in there, they were all severe at this point, and it's mostly unvaccinated people, of course. And so they put such a burden on the healthcare system that anybody who's dealing with non-COVID issues, I mean, the shit I saw in that emergency room is terrifying. I mean, people who can't breathe, who were sitting there waiting for 20 minutes, a poor girl with a broken hand who was sitting there waiting for 15 minutes, somebody who just had blunt force trauma, some car accident or something sitting there, bleeding, Stitched up, doesn't know what's going on, and you got some nurse walking up to them saying, the bathroom's over there if you need it. And the person's like, Ugh. terrifying stuff. But anyway, so moral of the story is it does appear now in a very, like, harsh libertarian way. You're on your own with the healthcare system. That That's at least the sense that I got. Um, you know, I'm, I hate hospitals, and I never would want to go. I only went because I felt like I absolutely had to. Um, and basically got nothing out of it except some bills and a a terrible story to tell so i mean there you have it thankfully my leg is getting better still not 100 percent probably 80 percent uh i'll need to keep stretching it need to keep doing like my pt on my own basically and um hopefully get to a point where i could sort of walk normal if you see me now i kind of shuffle like an 80 year old man because i can't put too much weight on my right leg Um, and I I have to keep it a little bit bent. I can't really go into dorsiflexion with the foot. But, you know, it's getting better, and obviously good enough for me to drive back from D.C. to here, and I'll eventually be, you know, going back there because we got some awesome Crystal Kylan Friends podcast coming up. But, yeah, there you have it. Uh, My gimp-ass leg is improving, but what a terrible, terrible, terrible experience with the U.S. healthcare system. But, listen, I I know for sure that my experience pales in comparison to what a lot of you guys uh, have dealt with because – Anytime you post something like this, or there's just endless horror stories that people have, things that are way worse than what I'm talking about, where it's like, you know, they were on the verge of death, and then they get no help, and then they get a bill for, like, thousands of dollars. And it's like, well, Jesus fucking Christ, what are we doing here? Totally broken system. It needs a top-down reboot. And uh, I think that goes without saying. Okay. Now, let's move on. Uh, the New York Times released an article about Biden and the Democrats, and the gist of it is, you lost the base. Base is going, going, gone. So uh, let me show you here. They say, Democrats struggle to energize their base as frustrations mount. Even as President Biden achieves some significant victories, LOL, at that framing, Democrats are warning that many of their most loyal supporters see inaction and broken campaign promises. Uh, You know why people see that? Because there's been inaction and broken campaign promises. He said $2,000 checks, we got $1,400 checks. And that was one of the better things, by the way. He said $15 minimum wage, we didn't get $15 minimum wage at the federal level. He said public option, we didn't get any reform on health care. So let me uh, show you one of the key portions of this article here. Interviews with Democratic lawmakers, activists, and officials in Washington and in key battleground states show a party deeply concerned about retaining its own supporters. Even as strategists and vulnerable incumbents from battleground districts, Worry about swing voters, others argue that the erosion of crucial segments of the party's coalition could pose more of a threat in midterm elections that are widely believed to be stacked against it. Already, Mr. Biden's approval ratings have taken a sharp fall among some of his core constituencies, showing double-digit declines among black, Latino, female, and young voters. Those drops have led to increased tension between the White House and progressives at a time of heightened political anxiety after Democrats were caught off guard by the intensity of the backlash against them in elections earlier this month. Mr. Biden's plummeting national approval ratings have also raised concerns about whether he would or should run for re-election in 2024. Not all the blame is being placed squarely on the shoulders of Mr. Biden. A large percentage of frustration is with the Democratic Party itself. Now, uh, first thing I want to say is to bust up this myth that um, you have a choice. You can either serve the centrists, the moderates, the swing voters, or you can serve the base. That is a the most obvious false dichotomy of all time. I mean, it's just a super clear false dichotomy because if the polling is correct, and it is, when you serve the base, you're actually serving the swing voters and the so-called moderates as well. Because people might call themselves moderates, but when you look at what they actually believe on the individual issues, whether it's healthcare, or wages, or foreign policy, or climate change, they want action. And they want action that was actually laid out in that original $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. So by raising the minimum wage, by doing something like the PRO Act, by having climate change legislation, um, by doing a public option, by doing any of these traditional left-wing priorities, you're actually not only serving the Democratic base, you're going to win independence and you're going to hold independence. Remember, Biden's approval rating was highest when he cut those checks and he did the COVID relief package. Now, the traditional stupid Washington, D.C. conventional wisdom is like, With a big spending package like that, you might lose moderate voters. Well, no, then why was his approval rating at the time, like, 55%? It's because that conventional wisdom is dead wrong, and they don't know what they're talking about. And the saddest fact of all is that I have no doubt that behind the scenes, Biden, at the very least, is hearing a mixed message about what he should do. Some saying, oh, you know, complete the agenda, make it more bold, and others saying no, put a pause on it because of big spending and inflation and the deficit, and the debt, and this is bad for us. It's either he's getting a mixed uh, you know, view on what he should do in order to fix his approval rating, or he's getting just the view of the debt, the deficit, inflation, don't do another big spending thing, this is going to hurt us even more. So in other words, probably the minority view, if the view is even in the room at all, is like, do the right thing. Good policy is good politics. And that really is the gist of it. It's not any more complicated than that. Good policy is good politics. If you deliver for people materially, they'll deliver for you at the ballot box. And so I just, what I see is a Democratic Party that's totally lost in the woods. And the reason why the Democratic base is abandoning Biden and the Democrats is because we have eyes. Like, anybody who is even paying 10% attention to the negotiation on the reconciliation bill realizes what went down. President Manchin and President Cinema. We're like, hey, all of the popular provisions that are really good for the people, strip them out because I am representing industry. I'm representing the coal companies, dirty energy. I'm representing big pharma, and so one by one, they would strip out all those popular provisions. Now, when you have a news cycle every day or every other day, this popular thing is gone, and this popular thing is gone, and this popular thing is gone, and the response from the White House is the response from the left is. Even, then what do you expect is going to happen? Because people say, well, who's fighting for me? Who's fighting for me? Biden's not fighting for me. The Democratic base isn't fighting for me because they refused to draw any red lines. Their only red line appeared to be, don't de-link the bills, don't de-link reconciliation from traditional infrastructure bill. And then eventually they caved on even that. So what did you expect was going to happen? That's my quote. What did you expect? When you're broadcasting to the world the Democratic Party is only as good as its most conservative member, and its most conservative members are basically Republicans. What do you expect? What did you expect? When given a choice between Republican light or Republican, Americans are often going to pick just the Republican. So here we are. Now, uh, the, the most damning takeaway from this entire conversation is not something that's laid out in the New York Times piece, but it's my interpretation of all the events as they're unfolding. I don't even think it's, it's a difficult call right now. I think Donald Trump is the favorite to be the president of the United States in 2024. Now, yet again, you're, you know, if, if anybody in elite media heard this, they'd lose their mind and call me an idiot. But remember, I'm, I'm the one who said after Donald Trump won Nevada, I think it was, which was maybe the third contest or the fourth contest in 2016 in the primary, I said, he's almost certainly going to be the nominee. He's like an 80% chance to be the nominee. And at the time, the chatter in mainstream media was like, no, You'll have a, you know, a resurgence of Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush will hold on or, you know, whatever. They were, they were, always, they were looking for it. Well, it can't be Trump. It's going to be this person. It's going to be that person. It's going to be this person. And nothing ever materialized. Now, I was the one who told you early on, it's almost certainly going to be Trump after just three or four contests. Um, so here I am again telling you that for the 2024 election, as we stand right now, Donald Trump is a favorite to be the next president of the United States. Biden used to be half dead. Now he's three quarters dead. He's in zombie mode. He doesn't know what's going on. He's not fighting for an agenda. His approval rating is 38%. The second in line to him is Kamala. She's at 28%. Third in line is Mayor Pete. He's 37%. Democratic strategists are saying stuff like, well, we can have a good ticket if we put both Kamala and Mayor Pete on the same ticket. Do you have an IQ of a gnat? What is wrong with you? They're despised. Nobody likes them. Kamala had to drop out before Iowa in the last primary. So if that's the conversation going on in Democratic circles... If it's Biden, Kamala Harris, or Mayor Pete. And then on the Republican side, what do you have? Trump's got a lead by a mile and a half, and then behind him you have like, DeSantis, and then behind DeSantis you have like Pence. Like, If Trump runs, he'll drag them as clowns, instead of anybody else he's up against, and then it would be a general election where it's Donald Trump versus one of the three losers. Now, I, look, I submit to you, Joe Biden barely eked out a victory against Donald Trump at a time when we had a pandemic at a tight and an economy in shambles and if he could barely hold on in that reality well what the fuck do you think is going to happen now when biden's been in office for four years and we're still back in the same place we were before and he's not delivering on the promises we're at a place where donald trump is likely to be the next president of the united states yet again he's likely to take the white house back in 2024 and i see nobody grappling with that fact nobody and it's astonishing because it's all so avoidable. It's all so avoidable. There's a million ways you can avoid it. You, you can have Joe Biden get a five-point bump in his approval rating right this second. Right this second. You can have Joe Biden say, you know what, We're gonna, uh, I'm going to free all the nonviolent drug offenders, pardon and commute all their sentences, and I'm going to change weed from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 5, They're, therefore legalizing it throughout the country. It'll help business, whatever. It's good for freedom, yada, yada. I'm reversing a lot of the harms I did with the crime bill when I was tough on crime in the 1990s. That was dumb. Sorry for that. And then all of a sudden, boom, five point bump. How do I know that? that? That issue polls at 68%. So the base is going to go, hooray. And then you're going to have independents are going to go, hooray. And even 50% of Republicans are going to go, hooray. That's one, just one thing I gave you. He could boost his approval rating five points. He's not going to do it. He's not going to uh, eliminate student loan debt. You can do that like this. Cutting another stimulus check. There's a million things you could do, but they're not doing it, and they're not being advised to do it, and they're hopeless, and they're useless. And this politics of milquetoast neoliberalism where thinking big is not allowed – and you know what the scariest proposition is? They might think they're thinking big with all this watered-down bullshit anyway, to which I respond FDR and LBJ are rolling over in their graves right now because this ain't big at all. You know, we had Bill Clinton in the 1990s, then we had another version of Bill Clinton with Barack Obama, now we have another version of Bill Bill Clinton with Joe Biden. There are differences between them, of course, but they're a lot closer to Bill Clinton than they are to FDR, or even LBJ. His approval rating is tanking, the base is gone. Who you have left, you have nobody. And, you know, the political environment is such a mess right now. People are hurting so much that That Republican base does not at all view Trump doing the the stop-the-steal bullshit as a deal-breaker. They don't view it like that at all. And there is an element on the right of this cult of personality around Trump. Now, don't get it twisted. Trump also has very high unfavorables. So it's not like he's a shoe in to win, but he is the favorite. He is the favorite. If you were to do a poll right now with all the Republican and Democratic possibilities, Trump would come out on top. He would very likely crush in a, in a Republican primary than whoever he's up against, you know, they would need to – Biden would need to deliver on some tangible stuff and then also run in a way that's a lot more like Bernie and a lot less like we're going to go back to normal. Because you said back to normal, and everybody knows where we are right now. It don't feel so hot now, does it? So, and I don't trust the Democrats to ever learn that lesson ever. So, I mean, look, your best hope is some, some Democrat coming out of nowhere – Sort of like Obama did in 08, where you know he, the person is very charismatic and getting his high rec- name recognition very quickly. Somebody like Warnock or Ossoff, or uh, I think Sherrod Brown's not charismatic enough, but somebody who's new and fresh and it, it, more exciting. But I think that's unlikely at this point because our, our media system is so broken and the Democratic Party is so broken. That they're going to do everything they can. They're already doing everything they can to force feet us Kamala or Pete. They're already doing everything they can on that front. Listen, I will say this. We'll end on a bright note. The bright note is if you have Kamala and Pete or Kamala or Pete running against Trump, pff, tremendous content. Tremend- that will be quite an election to cover if I don't say so myself. Okay. Tulsi Gabbard. So this brings me no pleasure to, to cover and talk about, but I got to give you guys the news. Um, Tulsi Gabbard just keeps the hits coming out. I mean, she is now a mainstay on Fox News, and she goes on there and tells them pretty much what they want to hear, almost across the board. Um, here she is discussing the economy and inflation, and effectively going Full Ronald Reagan.
2: Listen to the American people. People, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, Independents, regardless of party affiliation, people are struggling. People are frustrated with the fact that their government that is supposed to be serving them is ignoring their interests. When you look at the impact of inflation, this is affecting families all across the country Now you're wondering, okay, well, can I afford this or that, but I can't buy both. And it's just such a terrible thing when when our families across the country are faced with this. And when they look to Washington, what do they see? They see another multi-trillion dollar bill Mm -hmm. that the Democratic leadership is pushing. And I'm not an economist, Sammy, but I can tell you with common sense, like most Americans have, I know that dumping trillions more dollars into our economy right now is only going to make this inflation crisis worse.
1: Listen, that's just wrong. I'm going to break it down for you in a second. I'm going to give you all the information on it. But I thought the same thing at first. And I reached out to friends of mine who are economists and friends of mine who are experts, because I thought, well, it had to be maybe Trump's COVID stimulus package and then Biden's COVID stimulus package. There's too much money flooding the system. And that led to inflation. And so I was asking them questions with that implication in there. And they said to me, point blank, period, that's not what's causing inflation. What's causing inflation is the supply chain crisis. So uh, let me go ahead and break this down for you. There's an article in PBS that explains it very well. Inflation began to soar in early 2021 and has been hovering at about 5% or so year on year since May. That's more than double the 2% pace that the Fed has set as a target. The reasons prices are rising are complex and many, But one of the most important relates to the dynamic of supply and demand, and both are to blame. Let's start with demand. Even though early in the pandemic, consumer demand dropped as people hunkered down amid lockdowns and unemployment skyrocketed, it has soared over the past year. Not for services like restaurants and travel, but for goods, mostly ordered online. E-commerce activity has simply mushroomed to levels that never existed before the pandemic. Demand for products has significantly outstripped the market's capacity to produce or ship what is ordered. Some people aren't even going to the supermarket, hardware store, or restaurant anymore because they do all their ordering online. Many retailers such as Macy's, Target, and others have had to navigate this economy with, with scarce inventories and high freight costs to stay alive during the pandemic. They continue. These trends have created more demand than the delivery carriers can accommodate, stretching their ability to deliver products. For example, the holiday shopping season is predicted to have 4.7 million packages a day beyond what the system can possibly absorb or deliver. Storing these packages for even a short period costs money. Given there is great difficulty finding drivers, containers, and labor across industries, big retailers are offering generous education and other benefits to both attract and keep employees on hand as a means of adding capacity. All these added costs to hire, store, and deliver are usually passed on to consumers. They say supply is down. At the same time, supply chains remain a mess and are only getting worse. Bottlenecks have piled up across Asia, putting great strains on the capacity of supply chains to deliver in a timely fashion, and severe global shortages of drivers and other workers are making it difficult to expand capacity or fix other problems plaguing the supply chains so they can't break free of the thick mud they're in. They continue. This creates a shortage of products getting through that limit competition, causing price increases. There are dozens of huge container ships continually idling near ports in Los Angeles, New York, and elsewhere around the world, which is tying up large quantities of merchandise waiting to be unloaded. There are over 500,000 shipping containers with about 12 million metric tons of goods near Southern California alone. Ports have tried to lengthen their operating hours. U.S. President Joe Biden has made it a key issue and plans to spend billions of dollars fixing the problems, but there are not enough workers and drivers to unload the cargo. By the way, that's also because a lot of the workers, it was like quite literally indentured servitude that a lot of these drivers were working in. uh, Crystal Ball did a great piece on that on her show. Such, Such delays cost money because businesses choose then to carry more inventory, which they pass on to customers. As an illustration, let's look at Nike, which largely depends on Vietnam for much of its shoe production. It lost 10 weeks of production because of lockdowns within that country and is taking an average of 80 days to get shoes from Asia to retailers in North America, twice as long as before the pandemic. As a result, shoe prices are soaring like everything else. So that's what the real problem is. And on the demand side of the issue here, there is a a, a way to address this, and it's to bring back American manufacturing in a strong way and basically make anything here that we have the capacity to make here and that we can make here, because then you'll have more goods and there won't be the shortage of goods. Um, So that's one thing you could do to fix this. And there's another aspect to this inflation issue as well, which is a story that we covered on the show not too long ago. There are now companies that are just taking advantage of the fact that there's inflation in a lot of industries and with a lot of goods, and they're jacking up the prices and blaming inflation, even when these particular goods are not nearly as impacted as other goods. There's a great article on that in Business Insider. Again, we covered it on this show and gave you the specifics on it. So they're using this as an opportunity to say, well, what do you want me to do? It's just inflation. There's nothing I can do. And so as a result of that, the evidence that that we know they're doing this is that corporate profits have skyrocketed yet again, yet again. So they're using this as an excuse to jack up prices across the board, even though prices aren't really – high for every single good in every single industry. So that's the real problem. I just explained to you the real problem. And so it doesn't have anything to do with the spending packages. So what Tulsi Gabbard is doing is she's advocating for austerity. Well, if you're advocating for austerity, that's just right-wing economics. That's just like buying into an Austrian economics framework. That's Hayek and von Mises and, and, and Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman. That's, that's that thought process. Now, that is a thought process That is antithetical to leftism. That's just the opposite of leftism. That's not leftism. And, you know, look, when you go back and look at, I I challenge you to do this because I remember covering it on the show. Tulsi Gabbard's 2019 launch speech when she ran for president. She was nothing like this. Nothing. She ran on Medicare for all, which, by the way, that would increase government spending a lot. It would overall reduce health care costs, but it would increase government spending She's going around talking about, you know, oh, big government's bad, and, and she's now said that this is the second time she's made some right-wing economic comment. She even said uh, we need to end the war so we can reinvest here at home. She said that on the campaign trail. Well, now she's like, well, reinvesting here at home is bad because we're spending trillions of dollars, and that will lead to inflation. But it won't. It's, and look, I get it. If you thought the big spending bills led to inflation, you're forgiven because I thought the same thing, and I follow this stuff day in and day out. But it is incumbent upon you, if you're going to go on uh, you know, one of the biggest so-called news networks in the country, the biggest actually, and talk about this, it's incumbent upon you to do the research and find out if what you're saying is actually accurate. And so that's why I reached out to my friends who know more about this than I do. And then they explained the issue to me, and I was like, oh, okay. And she just didn't do that. Now, why didn't she do that? Well, it's either, you know, uh, it's either ignorance, like I think it's this, so I'm just going to say it's this, or – it's trying to play to the audience. And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, thoughts about Tulsi recently that that's exactly what she's doing, because she even did this on foreign policy issues. That was the area where she really, you know, staked her claim as like, I'm, I'm the anti-war person. And then Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, and she wasn't anywhere remotely found to defend him doing it. It was a weird mix of people. It was like me, Sagar, Crystal. And, like, Michael Tracy and Matt Iglesias were, like, the only people in the country who were like, this is good. Tulsi, who led the charge on let's end the wars, was (laughs) – now, to be fair to her, at that time, she was overseas um, doing some active duty stuff. But it's not like when she came back, she defended it. In fact, the next time she spoke about foreign policy, she went on Tucker Carlson's show, and Tucker threw a softball down the center of the plate about Biden drone bombing babies and murdering them. And instead of Tulsi being like, yeah, we shouldn't drone bomb anymore. This is crazy. This is illegal. This is grotesque. This is offensive violence. This is prosecutable. This is a war crime. Instead of doing that, she swatted it aside and pivoted to, but Islamism sure is bad, isn't it? In a story about how our tax money was used to massacre babies, your takeaway is, yeah, but their ideology is so bad. What happened? What happened? So look, this is full Reaganomics claptrap is what it is. We need to embrace austerity because of uh, because of inflation, even though the inflation has nothing to do with the spending. So what does that mean, Tulsi? Now, now definitely don't do Medicare for all, because that's going to be government spending. Definitely don't do. She was arguing at the beginning of the pandemic. She wanted thousand dollar checks to people every month. Well, now you're saying, well, we can't spend trillions of dollars. We can't do this with the inflation going on. So are you now against that, too? So no more Medicare for all, no more UBI. What else do you want to leave out? What else? Tulsi Gabbard, if I had told you Tulsi Gabbard was going to do right-wing economic talking points in 2016 when she said F you to the DNC to support Bernie Sanders or even in 2019 when she launched her campaign for president, you'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? If I told you she was going to be doing Reaganomics, you know, two years ago, you'd be like, what? Of course she won't. Well, here you have it. it's a shame, man. It's a real shame. It's pathetic. And I hate it. And listen, so what I'm trying to do here is just correct her, correct the record, give you the facts on the situation, let you know what's really driving inflation. Nothing I said here is controversial. Nothing. And my guess is there will be no course correction. There will be more segments coming about the big spending of the Democrats being bad. The real criticism of the Build Back Better bill is not, you're spending too much. It's, You're spending nowhere near enough, and you stripped out so many of the popular provisions. That's the real criticism. She's not doing that criticism. She's now doing a right-wing criticism. I think that speaks for itself.
3: All right, next.
1: So I said something the other day. Um, here, let me read you guys the tweet. I think this is like pretty banal. I think this is pretty obvious. I think this is a, a, a view that everybody's known I had for for years and years. Um, I said the kind of president on uh, had tweeted that I'm not I'm not interested in literally any up and coming. Democrat, any possibility. She said, there is currently not a single Democratic politician or possible candidate that I like or am excited about. Now, that is a sentiment that I share. That's exactly how I feel about it. I'm not excited about any of them. I'm not really interested in any of them. That's a terrible place to be in, isn't it? Um, So I quote tweeted that and said, I just want a New Deal Democrat, uncorrupted by big money, who isn't stupid, ultra-woke, and is a leader who gives zero fucks about media and elite backlash and somehow – This is more rare than a Sasquatch. So I said that. um, And you'd be surprised the number of people who took issue with that. Now, by the way, I continued and said, here's the message summed up of a potential candidate who would be awesome. I'm going to end the wars, give everybody health care and higher wages, and if you stand in my way, you're an enemy of the people, and I'll fuck you up politically. That's it. That's, That's the gist. Summed up in one sentence, that's the gist of what I'm looking for. And I don't see anybody. I don't see anybody who really fits this description. Now, The biggest um, critique that folks have of this sentiment is like, why'd you put in the isn't stupid ultra-woke thing? Well, I have an answer to that. Um, What was in my mind as I added that? This. So this is from the Women's March. They tweeted the following. This was on uh, November 23rd. We apologize deeply for the email that was sent today. $14.92 was our average donation amount this week. It was an oversight on our part to not make the connection to a year of colonization, conquest, and genocide for indigenous people, especially before Thanksgiving. They're apologizing for an email where they told people their average donation was $14.92. Because $14.92 might be traumatic and trigger people and make them think about indigenous genocide and colonization and conquest and Christopher Columbus. Now, listen, is Christopher Columbus a piece of shit? Oh, yeah, all the historical accounts of him are, he's a colossal piece of shit. And I have no love or sympathy for any of the right-wingers who try to rehabilitate him or, you know, Ben Shapiro with that Daily Wire video years ago that was like, actually, genocide is good. And, like, that's true, and it's also true that this sort of shit is psychotic. People on the left need to realize there's a time and a place to tell people, fuck off, you're being ridiculous. This is one of those times right here. Now, I have another example, because you might say, okay, but this is just a one-off. This is, it is not a one-off. This is an actual problem in activist left spaces. It is. Here's another great example of it. Do you remember when Ilhan Omar tweeted um, about APAC, so the Israel lobby? She said, it's all about the Benjamins. Now, the point she's making... Is the same point she makes in regards to Saudi Arabia, any of the Gulf states, any uh, you know, any corporate lobbies. The point is, they're doing legalized bribery and they're doing corruption, and they give money to politicians and then politicians do their bidding. That's the point. Oh, it's all about the benjamins. With AIPAC, with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia uh, gives money to Donald Trump through his hotel, then Donald Trump approves a multi-billion dollar weapons deal for Saudi Arabia. It's all about the benjamins there. So this is the way Washington works. It's all about the benjamins. She said it in regards to AIPAC, the Israel lobby, and she was immediately accused of anti-Semitism by virtually the the media, like all of elite media, and the entire Republican establishment, and even like half of the Democrats were like, anti-Semitism, you better apologize. That's what this is. And at the time, so at the time, of course, I'm out there like, are you guys fucking crazy? What she's saying is the most obvious thing in the world. She's talking about corruption. She's talking about legalized bribery. This has nothing to do with the stereotype of Jews and money or whatever. No, it's about they're not magically exempt from the same corruption and legalized bribery that plagues Washington with every other government and every other corporate entity and every other PAC. They're not exempt from that. They can't just pull an identity card and then hide behind it. And that's what they were trying to do. So you would think – so I was out there defending it. There were a handful of others who were out there defending Ilhan Omar and saying, are you guys fucking crazy? What are, you, what are you pretending here? You know who didn't defend Ilhan Omar? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who went out there and tried to split the difference. Oh, we need to hear the voices of the marginalized communities who say they're hurt by the language. And she didn't come come to a strong defense of Ilhan Omar. She didn't. Instinct on the left. Whenever anybody makes a claim of, like, bigotry or xenophobia or hurt feelings, it's like you must bow at the altar of the bigotry or xenophobia or hurt feelings and always consider it legitimate. Well, what if it's not fucking legitimate? The 1492 shit, to be upset about that, is not legitimate. And there were probably three people in the entire fucking country, and the entire activist left grounds to a halt because this is stupid ultra-wokeness. Now, if you don't see the problem, it's because you don't want to see the problem. That is a problem. Stop pretending it's not a fucking problem. So, that's the issue here that I'm talking about. And... As long as you have lefties who don't have a backbone and aren't willing to say, okay, now you're being ridiculous, then the left is always going to lose. Because the entire country looks at this and goes, <laughs> you guys are fucking idiots. Actual voters look at this like, <clears throat> yeah, you guys want to control anything? You guys are children, always talking about your feces and how you're hurt. And this. this isn't what leaders do. Now, does this mean that there's no such thing as racism or bigotry and that we shouldn't address systemic inequalities? Of course fucking not. Of course not. Don't misconstrue what I'm saying, which is, by the way, the first thing everybody fucking does. But what it does mean is don't immediately genuflect at the altar of any criticism of bigotry or xenophobia or hurt feelings or whatever. Every now and then, you got to puff your chest out and say, you're full of shit, and you can shut the fuck up. You can go right on to shut the fuck upsville. And unfortunately, nobody does that on the left. And so, you know, we're left with um, oftentimes what we have is politicians who might be correct on – The economic stuff and on the foreign policy stuff but then like any popular support they have they just blow on the battlefield of wokeness and again if you don't see that it's because you don't want to see it sorry so you know i might get criticism over this segment but this is a real problem on the activist left and i've witnessed it firsthand a million times you got to remember you know when back when we founded justice democrats now of course what they are now is don't even get me started they're a joke but I witnessed it firsthand with Jank Uygur, when they dug up his, like, old blog posts, and everybody, uh, you know, they, they, the staff literally did a mutiny, and they were like, it's him or us. Because in the year 2000, he wrote, like, jokes on a blog. Don't tell me that's not stupid ultra-wokeness run amok. And that's, again, I'm just giving a sprinkle of examples here. You know that the list is fucking endless. So that's why I made the claim. That's why I said... All I want for president is a New Deal Democrat, uncorrupted by big money, who isn't stupid, ultra woke, and is a leader who gives zero fuck about media, zero fucks about media and elite backlash. And unfortunately, this is more rare than a Sasquatch. But that's the path to victory. It's not that difficult. Um, you guys tell me if I'm missing anybody. If there is somebody on the horizon that that fits that, but if there is, I certainly don't see him. okay all right now let's get to one of the more substantive segments of the day brianna joy gray has been having a lot of great conversations on her podcast um bad faith i've been i listened to one with andrew sullivan um i listened to one with thomas chatterton williams she's bringing on people who she disagrees with on a lot of stuff, and they're get, having substantive conversations. And so it's, it's fun to watch. So I recommend everybody check that podcast out. Now, this is a really great back and forth. Um, it, it's from a broader – you watch the whole podcast, but it, she also posted a 20-minute segment on this issue specifically, the issue of defund the police. She's talking to Ben Jealous, the former head of the NAACP, and um, they get into it over the issue of deep on the police and whether or not it's a good slogan and good policy and good politics. So let's go ahead and take a look and then I'll give you guys my breakdown.
4: What do we put for, We put for that you have a public safety department, not a police department. You have a civilian head, not a law enforcement head. You have two divisions. One is, you know, police officers, one is armed. The other one is social workers. And that over time you replace about half of the police with social workers can yeah, we But that's just the fund. That is no, the fund. That's you
5: the don't, solution. You, you the don't have to call it... It's half an idea. It's, it's half an it's idea. It's not. Th- then they're, they're yeah, are, I mean, come on, it's half an idea. The fund yeah. and what? There are abolitionists who've been writing in detail for decades about what defunding the police actually looks like. And it exactly what you're describing yeah. is what they're advocating for. But now, then, if they want to call it something else, I don't really care. I, 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 well,
4: you should care for him. No, no,
5: no. You should. Just like
4: you should care. No. That. that Dr. King, right? Let's put Rosa Parks on the bus and not just take anybody who's having a problem on
5: the bus. Well, well, no, here's the thing. I did not bring the fund up in this conversation. I know, I did. You did. So I am very happy moving through the world, avoiding subjects, avoiding language that I think is not going to work for my audience. What I do not do is use my platform to keep on antagonism
4: but know, is, I'm talking about right? This is a family podcast, right? This, this <laughs> podcast, I can't, I can't imagine why there's many, I don't know, southern white police chiefs listening to your podcast. No, but there, right? are,
5: there are a lot of libertarians that listen to this sure. podcast. There are a lot of people across the political spectrum because I yes. like, they perceive you to be a fair dealer. Smart,
4: right? and, and, and the reality honest is, is <laughs> which is why I'm here, and I'm going to let's be honest, within the broad range of social justice, I've worked... Criminal justice reform with all those folks you've mentioned, libertarians, Christian conservatives, fiscal conservatives, you know, in addition to, you know, the left of the left of the left, right? And, and, and everything, with a whole for sort the of moderates who tend to be addicted when they're in office to, like, prison industrial complex money, so I don't mess with them, criminal justice reform, because they, they will tie you up all day long. But, all I'm saying is, when you want to abolish something, you've got to be able to say, like, defund it, you the know, Well,
5: the defund movie is doing that, and I hope that next time you are on TV and have the kind of platform that I am not afforded and someone says defund is a bad slogan, you would suggest to them that poll numbers aren't telling the same story. Joe Biden also got – his advocacy for fracking caused support for banning fracking to decline by 20 percentage points. Now, did fracking suddenly become a good idea because Joe Biden was like, fracking is good, and over the course of, like, four or five months convinced an additional 20 percent of Americans that we had to frack? No! But people who are, have, are in respective positions of power, spending their time and energy maligning ideas, slogans, whatever it is, will affect pool numbers. And so I'm just in conscious of that as well as I think I, I can be honest with them. But of course there are some people who are going to be hesitant about to fund. But my job as a communicator, I think, is not to poo-poo the idea or to say that it's not a well-thought-out idea because it very much is. And the extreme slogan is abolish the police. The fund wow. is the compromise. You and say, but Republicans... I have to say, that's a
4: distinction without a difference. When you're, you know, a working-class black grandmother at, at my church in Sandtown. They just simply want to know, like. Like, Well, what are you going to replace it with? And,
5: and then I would answer. True. And I and I would answer. But, but it can't be long.
4: It's got to be a short you, you the
5: whole just answer. Just you just you just sat here with you when you were planning your program at
4: Ithaca, you used a lot of words to explain. Oh, your right. version of de- yeah, that's literally so all what, you had so to so say. Lo- so what we would say is half of modern police work is social work, and therefore half the department should be social work. Then that's
5: literally what these fun people are saying. And I and I have to be so clear. But academics,
4: not like organizers.
5: I'm but, an organizer. they're, but they're not. There's plenty of organizers oh. who are out there who have been doing this work for a really long time.
4: But what I'm saying is that. <laughs> if you're actually working as an organizer and you're focused on a solution, what you run into is you better start talking about your solution. And so defund the police, you know, and to me, an organizer is somebody who actually gets them. A lot of people them call themselves organizers who only lose, right? Ben, come and when
5: on. Win, and so, that is
4: not win, fair. Win, right, right. When you win, it is fair because, because there better be a high bar. There's a high bar for me at the D, Right, I'm, you know, and so, you know, and I want them to win. And I'm working with them every day. And, and they're we're actually... That's have got I, something that, that, I, that is now moved through. And we got unanimous support. And we got unanimous support by organizing black folks and white folks and bombarding that city council with common sense. But we had to talk to them about what we were for. And so you can't just talk about what you're against. It's a real simple rhetorical point that, that you can talk about problem. You better talk about the solution, too.
1: Okay. So uh, there's a lot to say about this. Now, go listen to the whole podcast and definitely listen to the whole debate on defund the police. I don't want to be unfair to Brianna because I only took out – I don't know what that is. That was like a three- or four-minute clip uh, from within a 20-minute conversation about defund the police. So I want – you know her argument should be um, given justice and you should see it in its totality in order to um, come away with a, a fully formed opinion on it. But, so I listened to, to that whole portion. There's, uh, in the overall podcast, there are many portions where Ben Jealous says stuff, and I sort of, I'm like, sort of cringe a little bit. Um, but in this portion, let, let's break down what was said. Ben Jealous makes clear by talking about how he actually successfully helped get through this notion in Ithaca. Like, take the police budget, let's cut it in half, 50% goes to social work, 50% goes to law enforcement and policing. He's talking about how he succeeded in getting this through, apparently, in Ithaca. Um, and so the reason he's pointing that out is to basically let Brianna know, hey, we're together on the policy of this, on the actual substance of this. And Brianna's response is like, well, that's just defund the police. So there's two separate conversations going on here. One of them is, hey, what's the correct policy? And on the policy stuff, they seem to agree. Roughly the right solution is to cut police department budgets in half, take that 50%, put it to our social work, take the other 50%. And put it towards actual law enforcement. So if they agree on that that policy, then the debate is just over the slogan. And on the the issue of the slogan, I don't even think this is a close conversation because the numbers do speak for themselves. Now Brianna says at its height, defund the police was like forty percent support. Well, I got news for you, forty percent is pretty pathetic. Now what's the support in the most recent poll that I've seen? Now granted, this is from a year or two ago, but the most recent poll I saw on defund was 18% support. So this is what I don't understand in left circles. What I don't understand is when you have somebody who very clearly is with you on the actual policy substance, and he has tangible results and victories on this exact issue, and he is telling you, hey, your slogan is fucking toxic, why are we debating? Because I, I, I think that what Ben Jealous is pointing out is an objective fact, because if even had it tight, it was 40%, and now it's like 18%. Why would you want to make the path harder for yourself by holding on to, like, the least popular slogan of all time? Now, listen, I wasn't married to this stance I currently have because there is an argument in politics for if you make a maximalist demand, that might drag the Overton window so that the compromise is a more reasonable compromise. So if you sat back from the beginning and watched this unfold, that was a possibility. That, there was some potential in that that when you have activists in the street making a maximalist demand of defund the police, defund the police, then all of a sudden the compromise becomes a lot more left. Uh, However, having said that, that is not how it unfolded. In fact, how it unfolded is they made the demand. The demand was viewed as so insane by so many people that support for it went down, and then even support, like post-George Floyd, support for Black Lives Matter was like 80 or 90%. And then the more there were protests and the more that some element of those protests became riots, the more support for Black Lives Matter plummeted. So we took a moment where there was almost unanimous agreement that we need to do, take some strong action on police reform and squandered it. Squandered it by embracing a slogan that's easy to tar the left with because it's just not popular and squandered it by the protest not being led in a true moral and ethical way in the spirit of the civil rights movement and was sort of like a leaderless anarchic uh, anarchic is probably not a word um anarchy like situation so there's also something else Bree says she's Brie basically makes the argument that the media narrative moved move the numbers which again that might be true but if it started at like 40 percent then it was never popular to begin with and the whole goal of um, doing politics is you have to try to put your best foot forward to get, more, to, to get more people on your side. So let me give another example. Imagine if Bernie Sanders, instead of popularizing Medicare for All, um, he always called it a socialist government takeover of health care. Medicare for All wouldn't be polling as high as it is. It wouldn't be whatever, 60 70%, whatever it is, or whatever it was at its peak. It's still over 50%, but it wouldn't be that. Because you take the slogan which sounds the most appealing to the most people, because that's politics 101, and if he were to do, like, I'm in favor of a total socialist government takeover of healthcare, then all of a sudden the same issue, which could poll at 70%, all of a sudden is polling at 40%. And it's like, why do you want to make your life harder? Why do you want to do it? For some abstract notion of, of moral purity that is sort of made up and arbitrary? That just strikes me as as silly, um, and also the idea that like defund is a compromise. I don't think your average person understands the difference between abolish and defund, and I don't think they're wrong in feeling like that because not everybody is a hardcore left activist. So, look, my, my overall takeaway is very simple: if we agree that that policy is the most reasonable, like cut police budgets 50%, take 50% put towards social work, take 50% put towards actual law enforcement. By the way, I think that's reasonable. I do. Um, if you believe that that's the case then you put the smiley face on it and you package it in something that's appealing to get more people on your side uh so look that's that's my breakdown of the situation Now i will say this unfortunately i I get why the left is like sensitive on the issue of defund the police because this is gonna this is like the one issue that elite media and democratic leadership always comes back to bash the left over the head with to blame all election losses on this idea of defund the police. is total bullshit. The idea that like, you know, every left Democrat needs to be tarred with this when only like one of them ran on it, Cory Bush, and she won, by the way, in her particular district, it may have made sense to run on that. But like, the media is just going to bash over the head the left with this idea, you guys are unpopular, look at this thing deep on the police. What they're not going to point out is on virtually every other topic, we are phenomenally popular in the messaging and in, with the slogans. Whether it's Medicare for all $15 minimum wage, living wage, like union stuff with the PRO Act, free um, yeah, college universal pre-K, like all these left ideas, popular, 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 popular. Then there's like one out of 30 that's not popular at all. And the media seizes on that one and blames all Democratic election losses on that issue when only like one Democrat even ran on that. So I get, my point is here, I get why the left is like hypersensitive to these conversations around defund the police. I get it. Because it seems like it's the unfair scapegoat for all Democratic losses, and it's just a way to conveniently blame the left, which they always fucking blame the left. So I'm with the left on that, of course. Um, but at the same time, I also think it's inescapable that Deep on the Police is not fucking popular. It's never going to be popular. It's not going to help your cause. And if you want to hold on to it like a toddler holding on to their blankie at night, that's, I think, kind of sad. Okay. All right, let's move on here. Do one more and then I'll take a break. So Hillary Clinton has emerged from the wilderness um, to talk about the current state of politics in the country. And not only has her ideology not evolved in a positive direction, she's right back to the same old bag of tricks, here she is on Rachel Maddow, Um, I think this speaks for itself.
2: Ann Applebaum essentially says, if the 20th century was the story of slow, uneven progress toward liberal democracy, the 21st century so far is the story of the reverse. She says, you know, not only what we're going on, what's going on in the United States is a reversal away from democracy, but we should see it as part of a global problem. She identifies in particular that the authoritarian strongman regimes around the world are all helping each other, including, you know, personally supporting other corrupt leaders in their corruption and helping them evade sanctions and stuff. And it does feel both global and very hard to fight. It feels almost inexorable. And speaking with Ann Applebaum about that, I found myself sort of in a dark place for a few days. And I, I wanted to put that to you to find out mm-hmm. um, whether you see that through, through, through a lens darkly as well or whether you're feeling more optimistic about strategy against it. Well, Rachel, um,
0: I, I am very worried, concerned. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about exactly what Anne Applebaum and you and others are Uh, worried about and trying to point out, uh, because I do think that we are facing uh, a crisis of democracy, a crisis of legitimacy, uh, a crisis that really goes to the heart of what the future of our country and many others around the world will be. So I spend my time trying to figure out um, what we can do about it, and I am – uh, not ever going to give up because there's just too much at stake. Uh, but first and foremost, we have to make sure more people, besides people like you, me, and Applebaum and others uh, who uh, share our concerns, uh, see what we see. Uh, because I think that uh, the role of disinformation, the way that propaganda has been really weaponized uh, and The increasing ability to manipulate people through algorithms and other forms of artificial intelligence will only make this harder uh, to combat.
1: Imagine looking at the current state of the world and your main takeaway is like the disinformation online, the misinformation online, this is the problem and something needs to be done about it. So you look at all the problems we have in the world and your main takeaway is censor the Internet. You look at climate change. You look at the corruption, not just globally, but in the United States of America. You look at, you know, the fact that the minimum wage isn't a living wage. 30 million Americans don't have health insurance in this country. You look at all these things, and your takeaway is, the disinformation online is such a problem. Somebody should do something about it. That is such a, you know, she's so in her bubble, her little elite bubble, and, by the way, the other portion of this that is astonishing is uh, what Rachel Maddow saying at the beginning about, it. oh, the strongmen are now supporting other strongmen and they're evading sanctions and, you know, we're, we're heading towards a, a less, like, democratic era. What they don't tell you is that the United States militarily supports 73% of the world's dictatorships. So all this faux concern about, like, oh, the strongmen... The age, the era, an era of authoritarianism has been ushered in. It's like, yeah, and we facilitated it. Now, that, that's that's actually not fair because there's many authoritarians that are not, you know, U.S. backed, but we're certainly not the antidote to it. I mean, for Christ's sakes, uh, what our top allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Israel's like, you know, a, a theocratic uh, apartheid state, and you have Saudi Arabia, which is an authoritarian theocracy and they're going to, you know, cry about the rise of authoritarianism is so bad. What does that even mean? What they mean is the rise of the authoritarians who aren't our allies is bad. I mean, there's no, there's no objective standards here. You know what I mean? There's no looking at this and analyzing it in a fair, open-minded way. It's all biased towards U.S. empire. So, I mean, it's really something. They're talking about the downfall of, you know, liberal democratic societies, and Hillary's main takeaway is, like, you know, the disinformation is really the problem here. Really? Really? The material conditions aren't the problem. The rampant imperialism isn't the problem. The destruction of our climate and the environment isn't the problem. That's not the main thing that comes to your mind. The main thing that comes to your mind is somebody should take action on what's happening online. Now, don't get it twisted. There is a lot of misinformation and disinformation online and all these problems, but whatever sort of solutions you're proposing better not create a bigger problem than what the problem is. And of course, that's what these things, whatever she's in favor of, would do. And any sort of ministry of truth or regulation of the internet where you slap down things that are just, we think is untrue. Well, you know what, Hillary Clinton, you were somebody who pushed conspiracy theories that were untrue. Russia gave, for example, you were dead wrong about all that shit. Should you be banned? You know, she voted for the Iraq war. Bought right into all the propaganda, hook, line, and sinker. Should all the people who push that stuff be banned? And that's the problem is because if you do have some sort of regulatory body, they wouldn't have banned the people who were pushing the lies on Iraq. They would have banned the people who were standing up to the lies. So but anyway, I digress. You guys have heard me do that rant a thousand times. But she's back, and she sounds worse than ever. By the way, she also uh, – there was a headline about how she said, people don't understand Biden's extraordinary accomplishments. Look, I'm fair. I'll give credit where it's due. The pulling out of Afghanistan, great. I I was one of the only people to give him credit and defend him at the time. Everybody was shitting on him universally. The executive order to raise federal employees and federal contractors minimum wage to $15 an hour, great. I give him credit for that as well. I give him credit, even the $1,400 checks. He said $2,000, so he lied, but I'll give him credit for giving $1,400 checks. There, there's your credit. But don't pretend like it's extraordinary success, extraordinary accomplishments. Because he said $15 minimum wage federally, he didn't get it. He said public option, he didn't get it. They said uh, $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, we're down to under $2 trillion, and it looks like they might even not get that. So, spare me. Spare me. FDR and LBJ are rolling over in their graves, and you know it, but in this new era of milquetoast neoliberalism, they try to spin everything as a win, even if it's we're basically acting like Republicans. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, I got one more Hillary Clinton for you, and then we're going to move on to the, the primary polls. We're going to move on to Andrew Yang versus David Packman. and Fox News idiots uh, have the dumbest attack on the coronavirus variant you've ever seen. Stay right there. We will be right back. Oh, and uh, later on, Jared Kushner selling out to the Saudis completely. Stay right there, y'all. up, beach. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Let's keep the fun train going. All right, let's do it. So Hillary Clinton was on Rachel Maddow's show, and uh, she spoke about, she has this new book coming out, and uh, she spoke about, what happened on January 6th and what it was about and what needs to be done. Let's take a look.
0: I am determined to continue to speak out to do whatever I can. And, in fact, in the book we wrote, State of Terror, as you know, there is a plot against the country by people who truly want to turn the clock back. They believe that the progress we've made on all kinds of civil rights and human rights um, the cultural changes that have taken place are so deeply threatening that they want to stage a coup. Now, think about it, because that's truly what is behind Trump and his enablers and those who uh, invaded and attacked our capital. They don't like the world we're living in, and they have that in common with, uh, you know, autocratic leaders from. Uh, Russia, to Turkey, to Hungary, to Brazil, and so many other places, uh, who are driven by personal power and greed and corruption, uh, but who utilize fears about change uh, to try to get people to hate one another and feel insecure, and therefore be easily manipulated by demagogues and by disinformation.
1: So here is why that summation of events, I think, is fundamentally flawed. Um, She says, listen, there's a plot against the country by people who want to turn the clocks back, and they're against all the, you know, advancements we've made in civil rights and human rights and things of that nature. Um, So the argument is effectively the social change has been too much for these people, and they want to roll the social change back. So, you know, I don't know specifically what issue she'd be referring to here, but we recently got gay marriage. That wasn't that long ago. Now, I ask you, do you think that's the reason why people storm the Capitol? Do you think people storm the Capitol? Because as she she said, civil rights and human rights, people are anti-civil rights and human rights storming the Capitol. So is it because they didn't like the Civil Rights Act of 1965? Is that why they stormed the Capitol? Uh, Is it because, you know, oh, they don't care about human rights. Okay are they storming the Capitol because of our foreign policy? Is that why they're storming the Capitol? Because that's the realm of human rights first and foremost. Uh, I actually would submit to you that it's not that, oh, there's too much change, and that's why these people storm the Capitol. There's two main reasons why people storm the Capitol. Um, One of them is just flat-out brainwashing and basically like the Trump cult Filling everybody's head with this false idea that the election was stolen, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So on the one hand, you have just total brainwashing. That's one of the reasons why people stormed the Capitol. And for those people, that's why you saw some of the people who stormed the Capitol were actually like relatively well off financially, and they just sort of fell into this fell down this rabbit hole, whether it's QAnon or Stop the Steal stuff, and they got totally brainwashed. So that's that's half of it. But then I'd say the other half of it, and these are of course rough numbers, is that there hasn't been enough change, not that there's too much change, but that as Noam Chomsky said famously about the Tea Party, the the pain is real, but their answers are wrong. So yeah, people have been left behind in this country, and they haven't been given a fair shot, and the economy is rigged against them. And unfortunately, they bought into a demagogue and a charlatan as their savior because Trump what did he do? He scapegoated immigrants, and he scapegoated um, Mexicans and Muslims, and people are looking for somewhere to place the blame for their problems, and Trump gave them an answer when the Democrats gave them no answer. Now, Bernie did give them an answer, and that answer is correct, the one that Bernie gave. It's not, it's not immigrants. It's not you know Muslims and Mexicans. The, the real issue and why your life is not advancing and you feel like you have a rough go of it is because we have billionaires and corporations who've rigged the system against you and in their favor. And so he gave them a correct narrative. Trump gave them a wrong narrative. But this idea that, like, they just want to roll the clocks back. My, my main bone to pick with this argument is this idea that, like, well, they're just bad people. They're bad people who believe bad things. They want to roll the clock back to a worse time. They're against civil rights. They're against human rights. And that's the end of the conversation. That narrative is very convenient for Hillary Clinton to claim Democrats have totally clean hands in all of this. So in other words, don't look at my husband, Bill Clinton, and his um, repeal of Glass-Steagall which, with the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which in turn led to a colossal market crash in 2008, helped lead to that, which screwed homeowners in this country and screwed the American people. Don't look at the pain that came about as a result of that helping push people to more extremes. Don't look at that. Don't look at welfare reform, which destroyed people in this country. Don't look at the corporate Democrats and the fact that they don't embrace New Deal leftism and universal programs. Don't look at that. Because here's my main contention to people. And you guys know I've been making this case forever. But with a healthy political environment and economic environment in the country, so in other words, let's do a thought experiment here. Let's say... Between FDR and LBJ, instead of delivering on a bunch of the stuff they did, whether it's war on poverty, New Deal stuff, let's say they actually delivered fully to make us a Scandinavian-style social democracy, a welfare state. So in other words, you have – everybody has health care, so you have universal health care. You have free college for all. You have no student debt. You have, let's say, universal unionization in this country, so that basically the lowest wage anybody gets paid is $15 an hour or $20 an hour. Um, uh, universal daycare, pre-K. So in other words, let's say we lived in a country where everybody's basic needs were met and we have more of a claim that you really live in a meritocracy. Hey, look, your basics are taken care of. You've got a roof over your head. You've got food in your belly. You've got all these basic things that everybody gets as just being born in this country. You have all that. Now, after that, it's on you. I submit to you, if we lived in a politically healthy country and an economically healthy country, where the bare minimums are met, you never would have gotten a Donald Trump presidency. And you certainly wouldn't have gotten a bunch of psychopaths storming the Capitol. So now, let me be clear. That does not mean you have no cranks. You'd have nobody who's purely brainwashed into some weird political cult. You'd have no political extremism. Of course it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is, if you had a healthy political and economic environment, can you reduce it maybe 25%, 40%? you bet your ass you can. And if you reduce it 25% or 40%, those motherfuckers ain't winning elections, dog. And that's my main contention with Hillary Clinton's narrative here. Her narrative is very simplistic. There's the good guys, the Democrats, and the bad guys, the Republicans. There's the good guys, everybody not Trump. There's the bad guys, Trump and, and the Trumpy people. And they're just bad. They have a plot against the country, they want to roll the clocks back, they're anti-civil rights, they're anti-human rights, and our job is to defeat them. That narrative is so simplistic and it also lets the Democrats wash their hands of any terrible things they did which helped foster this environment which led to the craziness. So now again, this is a very nuanced conversation. I'm trying to be as nuanced about it as possible because there are some people who are just purely brainwashed. And no matter what, you're just going to have some people who are brainwashed. You could have somebody makes a million dollars a year and they're totally fucking brainwashed and they believe in the Trump cult and they believe in stop the steal and all this stuff. So I'm not saying good economic and material conditions absolve everything. What I am saying is it ameliorates enough of it where a guy like Trump never would have won in the first place. And, you know, I think there's a lot of historical evidence to back that claim up. I mean, even when you go to the most extreme example, you know, Hitler probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the Treaty of Versailles. Go read about the Treaty of Versailles. It's absolutely fascinating. The Treaty of Versailles absolutely destroyed Germany and put them behind the eight ball, gave them debt that they'd never be able to pay back, and made them so angry and so furious, and they had so little that they were ripe for a demagogue and a charlatan to rise up through the ranks and say, it ain't your fault. It's it's the Jews' fault. fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. And then that's where that extremism was birthed out of also terrible material conditions. Now, again, without those material conditions, Hitler never would have won in the first place. Does that mean there would be no far-right people at all in the world? And there'd be no, you know, like, uh, eugenics believers? Of course not. But what it does mean is you can nip these problems in the bud in the sense that they can never get powerful enough to hold power. They can never become popular enough to hold power if you actually deliver for people materially. So that's what I think she gets wrong. It's too black and white a worldview. It's too, they're, we're good people, they're bad people. We got to defeat the bad people. And they're just against all the good things. No, I really don't think that's fair. And I think great evidence of that is the fact that there were millions of people who were two times Obama voters who flipped to Trump. Cause you just can't make the claim with those people that they're just racist and they're just bad people. And they're just against the social change. Now, that's not a huge percentage of Trump voters, but there's enough there where it's like if you had gotten those people, maybe you wouldn't have lost the election in the first place. You know what I mean? See, that's the whole – that's why the whole debate about economic anxiety always annoyed the shit out of me is because the debate would be – somebody would say Trump won because of racism and bigotry and, and white grievance politics. And then somebody else would say Trump won because of economic anxiety and because – and that's the end of the conversation. And obviously the answer is – both things played a role. It's not like David Duke or Richard Spencer voted for Donald Trump because Donald Trump was against outsourcing jobs. No, they voted for him because he said Mexicans are criminals and rapists, and because he said, let's ban the Muslims from coming into the country. And so there are some people who vote for the purely race stuff. There are some people who vote for the purely economic stuff. And then most is probably a mix, or they have their own little issue that they point to. But the main point I always would come back to in that conversation is very simple. If the Democrats actually delivered on a real economic agenda and improving people's lives and delivering people health care and don't outsource the jobs and give people higher wages and all that stuff. Would that have been enough to make it so that any generic Democrat beats Donald Trump in an election? Yes. Yes. Because what's the election coming out to, less than 100,000 votes in the Rust Belt? You're telling me if Democrats actually delivered on the stuff that materially improved people's lives, you couldn't get an extra 300, 400,000 votes in the Rust Belt? Of course you can. Of course you can. So really the conversation is people talking right over each other's heads, and they're not nuanced enough, and one person says it's all race, the other person says it's all economic anxiety, when it's a lot more complex than that. And if you deliver on the economic stuff, the, the race stuff just becomes less of a factor, which is the main point. People are less likely to turn on their neighbor and to scapegoat if they feel like they're doing okay. It's when get, there becomes a zero, zero-sum mindset when you feel like this person's taken it from me and that person's taken it from me, and that is why I'm not doing okay. Well, somebody doing okay, they're not going to blame anybody for anything. Because what? Why are you blaming anybody? You're doing fine. So anyway, that's my breakdown. Um, she wrote a book, man. She wrote a book. Of course, she wrote a book. And look, effectively, based on what she said here, the whole notion of the book is to build this narrative. There's the good people and the bad people. We're the good people, and they're the bad people. And that's why, you know, they still feel even after the fact. She still feels like we didn't. Really, I didn't really do anything wrong. Because she feels like, I didn't fail you, the voters failed me. Not enough good people came out to vote for me, so that's why the good people didn't win. And it's like, again, well, how mighty convenient is that absolves you of any wrongdoing. So there you have it. All right, next. So we have a new poll. New poll um, from Hill, Harris X, on the 2024 Democratic race. Take a look at this. Kamala Harris leads 26%. Michelle Obama, 15%. Bernie Sanders in third at 7%, even though he's going to be 1,000 years old. AOC, 5%. Pete Buttigieg, 5%. Gavin Newsom, 4%. Stacey Abrams, 4%. Amy Klobuchar, as we know her, Cloud Boot Jar, 3%. Someone else, 3%. Cory Booker, 3%. Elizabeth Warren, 2%. Beto O'Rourke slash Bet on My Stork, 2%. Michael Bloomberg, 2%. How the hell does he have 2%? Sherrod Brown, 1%. Andrew Yang, 1%. That probably would have been higher if he didn't leave the Democratic Party. Gretchen Whitmer, 1%. Katie Porter, 1%. Unsure, don't know, 16%. So look. Kamala Harris, Michelle Obama, big uh, leads here. I have to say I'm surprised that Bernie's at seven, given how old he is, and he almost certainly isn't going to run again. Um, And AOC at 5%. I think this is her best poll yet, basically tied for fourth with Mayor Pete. Um, Yeah, I, as you can tell, I'm really not optimistic. I don't think Bernie's going to run again. And I think if he does run, I do think that the American people are going to think he's just too old. I mean, I'd vote for Bernie's carcass over any of these people, but I'm not your average American. I'm I'm Kyle Kilinski. So I don't think he's going to run again. I think AOC wouldn't honestly have a chance in hell. I don't think she has the political instincts necessary. Um, So then what we're left with is Kamala Harris, uh, Michelle Obama, and Mayor Pete. And by the way, oh, Newsom too now. Yeah. I mean, maybe he will take a crack at it because he won his reelection convincingly after all the chatter that maybe Larry Elder would win. Um, There's another article, a CNN opinion article, where they said, I'm not kidding about this. Well, instead of talking about Kamala or Mayor Pete in 2024, if Biden doesn't run, by the way, this is a poll, if Biden doesn't run, to be clear, I don't know if I said that. Um, Why not talk about Kamala and Mayor Pete? So have Kamala at the top of the ticket and Mayor Pete as VP, or maybe flip it and have Mayor Pete as VP and Kamala... Or Mayor Pete as president and Kamala as VP again. And the CNN uh, opinion piece writer was like, this will be a great ticket because you can continue Joe Biden's time in office without Joe Biden in there. Look at all the assumptions built into that. Like, it's a great ticket. Why? For who? Based on what? Kamala's a 28% approval rating. Mayor Pete's a 37% approval rating. Nobody likes him. This will be a great ticket. What? And it'll be a continuation of Biden. Well, the, Biden's at 38%. So why do you want a continuation of Biden? Now I'm just talking about popularity and electability. But even substantively, what are we going to get with these people? We know what we're going to get with them. Now, by the way, Michelle Obama is an interesting case. Why? Because nobody even knows what she believes. This is one of the things about politics that drives me crazy. It's like the Matthew McConaughey thing in Texas. How, you know, he was like leading the current governor in some polls. By the way, he said he's not going to run now. But he was leading the current governor, and nobody knows anything about what he believes. People are just like, I ah, don't Matthew McConaughey, cool. What? So the same way Democrats are like, I don't know, Michelle Obama, sweet, nice. Now, look, maybe, maybe she does come out, and, all, and she's far left of Obama, and she might do some good things. I don't know, but the point is you can't just throw your hat in the ring when you don't even know what the fuck they believe in. But that's what people seem to do. But when it comes to Mayor Pete and Kamala, we know what we're going to get. It's going to be the same old, same old. And this is the exact kind of thinking that gets Democrats destroyed. You know, don't act like there's not tremendous enthusiasm on the right, specifically for Donald Trump, even with all the the stop-the-steal bullshit. And you want to run somebody who couldn't even make it to the Iowa primary, Iowa caucus, excuse me, in the last election, that's Kamala Harris, and somebody who got, like, what, 2% of the vote in Mayor Pete? For his entire run, I mean, of course. God damn it, man. I I keep telling you, I, I mean your best bet is some outsider like uh, John Ossoff or, or Raphael Warnock. And, you know, I bring them up not to say they're the heir apparent to Bernie's throne, because I don't think that, I don't believe that, and they've yet to really prove themselves in any serious manner. But the point is you almost need an outsider who's charismatic enough to actually make a name from him or herself very quickly and then can win. And that's a better option than anybody on the, on the, on the list. I think that's clear, but it doesn't matter at this point. All I know is, as I told you guys, Donald Trump's the favorite for 2024. Buckle up. There's a lot of, uh, I understand the sentiment of doomerism and nihilism that's out there right now, but we, don't, we can't afford that luxury. We can't afford that luxury. And I don't like losers, so don't be a loser. However you want to fight, fight. Just fight some way. I don't care how. Do whatever you want to do. Join a union. Direct issue advocacy um general strike protest against specific congress people on specific issues pressure the shit out of biden i don't care but do something get dsa whatever do something random new third party uh congressional staffer for one of the non-shitty democrats whatever local politics state politics do some shit just do some shit because Nothing's going to get better by us sitting on our ass, and uh, I hate feeling like a passive observer to this nonsense, but unfortunately, we seem like we're stuck in neutral at the moment. Okay, next. Let's keep going, baby. So Andrew Yang um, went on David Packman show, and David Packman interviewed him. I think they talked about his book and they talked about his new forward party. Um, and here's a moment that I wanted to show you guys because I do think it's it fundamentally misses the point, and it's it's prescribing a solution which Yang believes is a sincere solution and uh, let me be clear, this isn't what he's proposing is not like it's a it's a bad thing like. The problem he's discussing it's, like it's not a problem, um, but I think that uh, he sort of misses the overarching issue. So let's take a look, and then we'll discuss.
6: Completely agree with you that the, sen- the system, by explicitly and implicitly, with things like the term limits that we have, almost always having to be campaigning for your next election, all these different things don't prioritize solutions to long-term problems like climate change. I agree with everything you said, and yet, part of climate change is a huge portion of one side doesn't believe it's real, or if they do, they don't believe humans are a factor. So this is where I get to, your analysis is great. I don't think it accounts for, it's more than that. When one side simply won't accept the science, how do you get those people to buy in?
3: All right. So let's play this out. Yeah. Um, what proportion of Americans don't believe that climate change is real or caused by humans?
6: The last I've seen, it's, uh, oh, we, I wish I had the data in front of me. I think it's about half or 60% of Republicans don't believe it's caused by humans, and maybe 25, 33%, something like that, don't believe it's even happening at all.
3: Yeah, so. That lines up with what what I thought the numbers were roughly. Um, So let's imagine that you have like gross numbers, 35% of Americans who either don't think climate change is caused by humans or it's not a big deal or whatever it is. And that that percentage is declining happily or unhappily because it's becoming so apparent apparent around us. So right now you have a Republican Party that is motivated by that, uh, you know, let's call it for for argument's sake, Uh, Roughly half of the Republican Party or a bit more does not think climate change is something we should do anything about. Sure. Uh, The problem is that that relative minority ends up controlling the agenda for half of the country and then can stall any real move uh, to change it. Yes. So let's say hypothetically instead of having two parties, we had four parties or five parties, and you had progressive Democrats, moderate Democrats, forwardists moderate Republicans, uh, and conservative Republicans. And the conservative would be like, hey, climate change, bunk, let's not do a thing. But then you, you'd have four, <laughs> like the four other groups look up and say, um, we should do something about it. So what you're seeing here is, is not quite minority rule, but it's minority uh, veto, or it's minority keeping anything from happening. And so this is the system as it currently uh, is made up. Uh, So the the thing that I want people to come to grips with is that politics right now is completely tribal, um, and you can be very, very angry at what another tribe says or feels, but the problem right now is that we only have two tribes, and it doesn't take much to gum up the works, which is why we're all losing our minds, getting more polarized and frustrated.
4: Yeah.
1: All right, so I'm going to come back to the tribalism point in a second, but to his multi-party idea. Listen, I'm not against that. In fact, if I was starting a system from scratch in the U.S., number one, I would abolish the Senate. It's where most decent legislation goes to die. Um, and it's really not representative. It's not small d democratic. Um, and, you know, you have like Wyoming has the same number of senators as California. Wyoming has eight people and, and uh, California has 12 quadrillion. Like, now I get why the founders did it, um, but I just don't agree with the system. I think it's a little ridiculous and it's undemocratic. And the other thing that's funny to me is it's like for some reason, I don't know why a lot of people pretend like it's not undemocratic and it's like, okay, you can support the system, but just acknowledge the fact that it's undemocratic because it is a fact that it's undemocratic. So I'm not against what he's saying. If I was starting from scratch, I would abolish the Senate. Um, I would have more of a parliamentary style system. I definitely have ranked choice voting. I definitely have open primaries. I definitely have a lot more direct democracy as well, like direct votes from the people on issues. So I don't, he's not wrong when he brings up, like, hey, this is a better way to do it. In fact, I think he's sort of right about that. But it does fundamentally miss the way politics works. Because even if we set up the system he's describing, you still wouldn't get action on climate change. You still wouldn't get it. Why? How? How do I know that? Because the reason we don't have action on climate change is simply because of the influence of the oil lobby and the dirty energy lobby. They have bought virtually the entire Republican Party and some of the Democrats, and that's enough to totally stall any real movement towards renewable uh, energy and green technology and getting off of fossil fuels. So the real problem is moneyed interests buying the political system. That's the real problem. So the real problem is corruption, money in politics, legalized bribery. Now, you know, the way you address that is this thing called clean elections. The way you address that is to publicly finance elections don't have any private money in the system. Now, it's hard to get to that point because the Supreme Court basically ruled that it's our right to have private money in our elections because they say money equals free speech. I think that's ludicrous, but that's what they say. So you'd either need a constitutional amendment to to address that, or there's only one workaround that I could think of, which is uh, direct ballot initiatives at the federal level, which is direct democracy at the federal level. And in theory, you could have the American people vote on three or five top issues every four years when we go vote for president. That's a way to work around the corruption where... It almost doesn't even matter that they're corrupt if we get the final say on the most important issues every four years or so. Uh, it's not a perfect solution, but it's something that's hell of a lot better than what we do right now, without a doubt. And the reason why you know, it's clear to see why he's incorrect, take gun control, for example. Something like 90% of Americans want universal background checks, and we still haven't gotten a universal background check bill passed. Now, if you switch it up into a four or five or six, seven-party system, it doesn't matter. You're still not going to get it passed because, again, the issue is – the money in the system. The issue is, at least on the Republican side, all the Republicans are bought by the gun lobby, and maybe a handful of the Democrats are bought by them too. And so all change is blocked on that front. You know, It's interesting. You'll notice the only areas where we see any real movement in Congress are, are social issues, where there's not as much money flooding the system. So like, there's more movement in the correct direction when it's like gay rights, for example. It, the Supreme Court was the one who ultimately said you know, gays have a right to get married. But you do, historically, you do see more movement on social issues because there's not as much money flooding the system against it. Like the Christian right lobby doesn't have nearly as much money as everybody else in the country. And like corporations are also now sort of on board with a more socially open-minded and progressive approach. So that's why you see movement on those issues. But where they want to grind stuff to a halt, they do. And so my point to Andrew Yang here is multi-party systems great. Fine. I'm on board with that. I think that's a wonderful idea. But it's just not going to solve the problems that we're talking about. And they were talking about climate change. Why don't we have action on climate change? It doesn't matter if 90% of the American people wanted action on climate change. The problem is the money in the system. It's not uh, anything else, really. Uh, so, but now let's go through a few more things here. Um, he, he's been bringing up term limits a lot as like, some sort of solution. That's another area where it's like, I'm actually torn on term limits. They're also literally undemocratic because, in theory, you could have somebody you want to keep reelecting because they do an awesome job. Bernie Sanders is a great example of that. presidency has term limits, um, and it's like, does that make the presidents better? No. It's not like because there's term limits, they go in for their short amount of time, and then they do a good job, and then they leave. So it's not necessarily a solution. Um, There are upsides to it, but I just don't think that there's some cure-all or or even necessarily a good thing in all instances. So I'm not sure term limits is a real solution. The other thing he loves is UBI. He didn't bring it up there. I agree with him on that. I agree with him on ranked choice voting and open primaries. But uh, final point is on the tribalism thing. He's like, oh, we're so tribal, we're more tribal than ever. Well, yes and no. Like, The culture war has made it so we are, in a sense, more tribal and partisan than ever before. And people are like more at each other's throats. And social media has exacerbated that, where you it's almost like the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and everybody who's fighting is where all the attention goes. And so in in some ways, we are more tribal than ever before. But I submit to you, that is just on the culture war shit. And the culture war is largely a distraction from the economic war that's going on that the elites are waging on the 1% are waging on the 99%. And, you know, like foreign policy and things of that nature, these are the things that matter. And on that stuff, there's a lot of agreement, which is why every time you looked at a poll for the build back better stuff on each specific policy, they're really popular. It's why people want a living wage and people want Medicare for all. And, you know, people want paid time off. And so there's actually in some ways we're less polarized than ever before. On the actual substantive issues, we're less polarized. It's just on all the cultural stuff, there's a a, a vehement divide. So I I always want to, whenever people make that tribalism point and and the partisanship point, it's like, yeah, it's half true, but look at the other piece of the picture, because that's just as important. And what actually brings us together is probably more than what splits us apart. But nobody reminds people of that. Nobody tells you that. You know, like there's probably some libertarian guy or some right-winger who's watching this, who's agreeing with a lot of the shit I'm saying, and it's like, well, yeah, because we've been fed this bullshit narrative, both from the media and the sense we get on social media, that, like, well, we always hate each other, and it's always been like that, and that's the end of the conversation. It's like, no, in some areas we are going to disagree, and we'll vehemently disagree, and that's fine. And that's the tribalism, and that's the partisanship. But there's a lot more agreement than people think there is. The real fault lines in the country... It's the corporations and the billionaires and the top one percent versus the 99 percent. And um, it's the people versus the elites. So it's like all of the owned politicians in Washington, D.C. totally corrupt. It's them versus the people. These are the real lines. That's not to like gloss over the real cultural and social issues, differences we have. They matter. But I don't like it when people overhype that and act like there actually is no other agreement elsewhere when there's massive agreement on a lot of things. So anyway, that's my breakdown of it. Um, Again, uh, every time I cover this forward party thing, uh, I tell you guys, the parts I like are simple. UBI, ranked choice voting, open primaries. I think it's commendable. If he's doing the DSA model, which half the time he says he's doing, great. That's great. Um, But uh, there are elements of it that, I think might be either a little bit of an overreach or maybe a bit of a waste of time. Like the idea of half the time he says you're doing the DSA model. Great, that could work. And then the other half the time he's like, well, we're going to break the duopoly. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not going to get anybody elected who's just a forward party member, full stop. And let's be honest about that. But anyway, look, any real attempts to improve the system, and in some ways he's doing that, I commend him. But I would submit to him, for the love of God, You've got to focus on the corruption part because that's the elephant in the room, and a guy who's as smart as Andrew Yang should be able to realize that. But, you know, who knows if, if he will sort of make that one of his big issues because there's I've been, had massive areas of colossal disagreement with Andrew before, too. All of his stuff on Israel's beyond salvageable. It's terrible. It's as bad as any Republican on that stuff or corporate Democrat. So, anyway, there you have it. Next, so we have this new uh, COVID variant. Uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Omicron, something like that. Doesn't matter. Um, it's a new COVID variant. Now there was a lot of there was a lot of um, alarm the first two, three days that we learned about this variant because all the articles seem to suggest this might be more transmissible and it might be more deadly. Okay, well, that is panic time, everybody. Turns out, even though it looks like it's about 40% more um, transmissible, uh, it doesn't appear at the moment like the sickness is any worse than traditional COVID. So it's still a terrible thing because more transmissible means it's by definition more deadly because then more people get it. And so even if it's a tiny percentage that are dying, it still means more people overall will die. Um, but it's not, it wasn't like the initial reports of it's also more deadly in its own merit, like on its own. That turned out, at least based on the evidence we have now from the World Health Organization and the South African Medical Association, turns out that's not true. Okay. So this was found in South Africa. It was, and the reason they found it's not that it came from there necessarily, it's that they have the scientific expertise where they were able to sequence it first before anybody else. And, and there is a misunderstanding on that. A lot of people think that just means it came from South Africa, like it was found there. It's a South African variant, not necessarily. They just found it there first in that they sequenced the virus and were able to isolate it. Okay, so Fox News takes the news of this uh, new variant and they say this.
4: We're going around with the idea of shutting down the economy, which created this crisis.
5: That's the answer is more lockdowns, more lockdowns, more fear. Um, and, therefore, he doesn't have to do his job of fixing the supply chain, because we'll just keep this whole thing going. So yeah.
2: there's a new variant. And you can always you know, count on a variant about every October, every two years. <laughs> oh, I think that so. Yep. You know, you're probably right. You think, like, however, they could speed up uh, the variant. It <laughs>
4: come more quickly. Up and up. We're going to need a new uh, variant here.
2: <laughs> By
4: the way, we're going to be highlighting small businesses a little bit later in the show.
1: So Democrats are making it up? Why would a new variant emerging during the Biden administration help Joe Biden? Why would that help him? If anything, that would hurt him even more politically. You get a new variant, the variant comes here, it spreads a lot more. By the way, it's probably already here, almost certainly already here. Um, Why would that help him? And even at the beginning, they were like, lockdowns, lockdowns, lockdowns. Lockdowns what? I don't think Joe Biden's going to do any more lockdowns. In fact, I think there's a 90% chance he doesn't do any more lockdowns. Now, maybe you have Democratic governors in given states that, you know, go further than Joe Biden in some respects. But listen, the United States has shown we are a lot less uh, open to the idea of locking down. We did it early on in the pandemic, but we're a lot less open to it than a lot of European countries, certainly a lot less open to it than like Australia, for example. So I don't like I don't know where they get this stuff from. It's not like Joe Biden even floated the potential of that. And but they're like, they're going to lock it down. What are you talking about? You just made that up, just like you also made up the fact that Democrats made up the variant. I don't know how to explain this to you. South Africa is its own place. It's not part of the United States of America. South Africa, they discovered the variant there. How do you think Democrats made this up? What did Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden sit there and, like, orchestrate the whole thing somehow coming out of South Africa? What are you saying? And by the way, it's already been found in, like, I don't know, 10 other countries so far. I, I don't get it. Uh, maybe what their point is, is like, well, Republicans are way worse at dealing with the virus. Therefore, a new variant would help Democrats electorally. Is that the idea? But I don't even necessarily agree with that, by the way. Trump was the one who did Operation Warp Speed and got us the vaccine. Well, in other ways, he was also horrendous on the, the virus, but it's not like Biden's been good. I mean, I agree with the vaccinate or um, test policy, but that was temporarily halted by the Fifth Circuit Court, and OSHA's uh, complying with it until uh, higher court rules. So they, they we don't even have that policy in place yet. I don't know what they're talking about, but this idea that it's like, well, it's, it's like made up, but why? What are you... T- now, by the way, let's talk about misinformation. Will this video uploaded on YouTube, will, would it be demonetized for Fox News? Would it be pushed down in the algorithm for Fox News? Would they, you know, get a, a strike on their channel? Would they get censored? Would any of that... No. No. Now, by the way, I'm not calling for any of that stuff, because I believe in free speech, even if people are saying the same things. But you bet your ass that, uh, you know, a smaller channel saying something like this, this demonstrably untrue, there would be action taken, whether it's some sort of warning before the video, that's something that happens a lot, um, uh, deranked in the algorithm... So doesn't spread to new people. There's a million ways they can sort of hold back your channel if you do things that are wrong, or even if you do things they just don't like but are correct. The, yet again, this is the problem. This idea of like prop up the authoritative news sources. These idiots are considered authoritative, just like CNN is, just like uh, MSNBC is, you know, Russia Gate Central. They're considered authoritative. It's it's beyond annoying. It really is. And it's wildly unfair to any independent analyst Just because they don't know what I'm going to say from day to day, it's like, well, you're, you get shafted as a result of it. And others do too. It's not just me. It's anybody in this field. I've, I've had conversations with virtually everybody who does what I do, and it's the same story over and over. That, you know, if you're not authoritative, you're pushed aside. I mean, when Crystal and Sager were on the Hill, they, were, they would get favored by the algorithm and their views would be colossal. Now, they still get good views, there's nowhere near what it used to be. I mean, close to what it used to be. And uh, they also notice with certain videos, with certain titles, with certain topics, they get screwed more. So, I mean, it's just par for the course for any any independent person doing this. But look at the insanity they talk – look at the insane things they say. I mean, that's just utterly insane. The Democrats made up the very – there you have it. Man, they, there's just so much nonsense out there, whether it's from Fox News, Newsmax, One American News Network, specifically when it comes to COVID and uh, – you know, various different levels and degrees of denial or downplaying vaccine efficacy or whatever it is. And it's disgusting. All right, next. So the New York Times uh, released an article that is basically just rank propaganda for Guantanamo Bay. So here's the title of the piece. Guantanamo Bay, beyond the prison, with 6,000 residents and the feel of a college campus, the U.S. Navy base has some of the trappings of small-town America and some of a police state. So they compare it to a college, small-town America, sprinkled in with a little bit of a police state. Um, in the article they lay out, they say it's a cross between a gated community and a police state. They bring up the fact that there's schools, bars, ball fields, uh, neighborhoods that have swing sets, beaches with barbecue grills, and what's called pleasure boats, which sounds kind of dirty. There's a McDonald's, and the McDonald's uh, had has a drive-through big enough so that a military vehicle can drive through it, I guess a Hummer. Um, There's a church. There's a bunch of suburban homes. There's a nine-hole golf course on Guantanamo Bay. Now, there's 39 prisoners who are left there. There's a staff of 1,500 people, mostly soldiers from the National Guard, and they're on nine-month tours of duty. And get this, they even imported labor. So they have Filipinos and Jamaicans are immigrants who do the labor. Um, apparently at 8 a.m. every day, they play the Star Spangled Banner, and when you read the article, there's not a single point or sentence or anything about what really went down to Guantanamo Bay, what it was for, the war crimes that were carried out there. Listen, I, I actually, I covered this stuff from the beginning, from, like, when I first started doing this, I start when I started doing it as, like, a hobby in 2008, I talked about this because I found it astonishing that some of the articles coming out at the time were um, the United States cut a deal with warlords in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And the deal after 9-11 was like, hey, we just got attacked. We know Al-Qaeda is responsible. So we want you to, if you see Al-Qaeda, ship them to us and they'll get some sort of monetary reward. And what happened is, turns out warlords in Pakistan and Afghanistan are not the most trustworthy folks Go figure. Uh, They would just round up their political enemies and ship them to the U.S. and say, here, we got Al-Qaeda. Pay up. Dick Cheney and George Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, that whole gaggle of neocon idiots was like, right on. And so we kept so many people there, kept so many people in Abu Ghraib, and we tortured them. We tortured them. And a lot over the years, a lot of stories have come out about not just the fact that these are innocent people, but a lot of them, we know their backstory and their personal story. There's a guy I remember covering called Marat Kernaz, He was a German citizen who was swept up there, totally innocent. He was tortured. Uh, and this is what we did. This, and, and the details of the torture are out of this world. I mean, we learned more and more about this over the years. But they would throw cold water on people and leave them um, in, a, in a cold sell overnight. One of them died from that. They would do loud music, torture, just play loud music all night and drive these people crazy, sleep deprivation. It's called, I think, Palestinian hangings is one of the things. Waterboarding, of course. Um, there are people who died from it. Torture at both Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. And uh, now you're seeing a complete and utter propaganda effort to be like, Look, it's just like small town America on a college campus and they play the Star Single Banner and they have a McDonald's and isn't this great? No, no, it's not. And it should be shut down immediately. And anybody who participated in crimes there and the leadership that ordered those crimes it should be prosecuted. And, uh, you know, look, the best intellectual exercise to do about this stuff is just flip the countries. Just imagine any of our official state enemies doing the same thing that we did at Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and Imagine them doing it, and what would our reaction be? We would say this is vile, authoritarian, dictatorial, tyrannical war crimes, and they need to be held accountable, and maybe we should do regime change there. But when we do it, it's called a random Tuesday, and we say, well, we mean well, so it's okay. Oh, we mean well, so when we torture innocent people and bomb innocent people, it's okay because our heart's in the right place. Oh, really? Is that the way it works? Imagine using that argument in court like you murder somebody and you're like, listen, I meant well for them. I didn't want to hurt anybody innocent, but I had to, I had to do what I had to do. And I meant well. And it was, it was for everybody's well-being. they look at you like, are you a psychopath? There's almost an extra level of dehumanization when you do that. Because it's not even admitting the obvious of what your actions are and what the results are and what the consequences are. And this is what happened at Gitmo. This is what happened at Abu Ghraib. And when they say, oh, it's an enhanced interrogation, we took the torture techniques from these communist Chinese manuals on how to torture. We took a lot of the techniques from there. By the way, when our soldiers were waterboarded by the Japanese in World War II, afterwards, we executed the people who did the waterboarding after a trial. But when we do it, we say, it's not even torture, it's just enhanced interrogation. Christopher Hitchens very famously was skeptical as to whether or not it was torture. He wanted to figure it out. So he volunteered to get waterboarded. Then he was like, oh, this is torture. Because he said, you're drowning. You're just, you're drowning. You feel like you're drowning. Thank you, New York Times. Thank you, New York Times, for doing your best to help clean up the image of uh, an illegal detention center. And I haven't even brought up the constitutional issues here. I mean, Apart from the fact these are war crimes, it's against international law, this violates the Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment. And also, there's no due process, there's no habeas corpus, you lock people up indefinitely. This is what we would pride ourselves on not doing as the leader of the free world and a constitutional republic. It's like, well, we don't violate people's rights, because that's what authoritarian dictatorships do. And then we do it, and we pretend like we're still somehow some beacon of democracy and freedom. It's atrocious. And again, New York Times, thank you for taking people who might be sort of naive to all the specifics of what went down and now sanitizing the image of Guantanamo Bay and making it seem like it's a fucking college town or a small-town America or some getaway, some beach resort. Great job. Great job. I am quickly becoming the Joker, if you can't tell. So Jared Kushner is... um, was caught with his new business venture here going hat in hand to some of the worst authoritarians in the world. The New York Times says, Seeking backers for a new fund, Jared Kushner turns to Middle East. Former President Donald J. Trump's son-in-law is trying to raise capital for his investment firm and is turning to a region that he dealt with extensively while in the White House. So he's going to the Gulf states. Jared Kushner's company curiously ranked raked in 90 million since he joined the white house this was back in an article from june 10th 2019 um his real estate company had quintupled in value since 2017 so when he was in office he was raising funds from all these sketchy sources whatever corporations whatever foreign governments now he's out of office and get this the number he's looking to raise from saudi arabia in particular is in quote the low billions of dollars so four or five, something like that, billion, around there, two to five. And my guess is Ben Salman will comply. Why? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one, Trump might be back in office in 2024, which means Jared Cushion would be right back to being a super powerful person. Um, and also, he apparently was a key player behind the scenes in, you know, smoothing out the situation after uh, Ben Salman murdered Jamal Khashoggi and I'm sure Jared Kushner helped facilitate some of the weapons deals. Remember, Saudi Arabia gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Donald Trump through his hotel in Washington, D.C., then Donald Trump turned around and gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. It's not to say he wouldn't have done it anyway, but it was maybe a little, a little wink and a nod and a thank you from the Saudi government because all the U.S. presidents give them weapons. Um, but this is the way that the game works. So while Kushner had power, he helped serve Saudi interests. And now Kushner's out of power and he'll get paid back. Very similar to Barack Obama when he was in office, bailed out Wall Street, no strings attached. They paid CEOs who bankrupted their companies. Those people got bonuses, all with tax money. And then the first news story about Barack Obama when he was out of office was what? He was given like a $400,000 speech to Wall Street. So, hey, you helped us while you were in there. Now we're going to pay you back when you're out. Same thing. By the way, same time this story is coming out about Jared Kushner. There's another story broken by the New York Times. Um... Hunter Biden met with a Chinese company. The Chinese company gave him an $80,000 diamond and offered him $10 million a year for three years to help set up a deal on uh, the right to cobalt, which is used for electronics and technology and, in some instances, used for car batteries. That, you know, It's an important thing for the future. And Hunter Biden helped secure cobalt rights for this Chinese company, which is actually an extent of the... Um, It's an arm of the Belt and Road Initiative, this particular company. And so for $30 million plus an $80,000 diamond, Hunter Biden basically sold out the U.S. He got paid personally and helped give China a leg up when it comes to cobalt moving forward. So this isn't a partisan issue. This is an elite issue. This is a corruption issue. And you see it with Jared Kushner. You saw it with Trump. You saw it with Obama. You see it with Hunter Biden. And you wonder why people hate politics. Now, I'm not saying people know the details of this. That's my job. I'm here to educate people on this stuff. But you wonder why people are so turned off by it. Because I think everybody has this intuitive sense that, oh, we're getting fucked. In in one way or another, we are definitely getting screwed. And yes, you are. Who are they representing? They're not representing you. Whatever the moneyed interests are, they're playing ball with them and getting paid, son. And then policy reflects their personal ambitions and all the stuff that it shouldn't. So, Jared Kushner, colossally corrupt. Um, We have this unholy alliance with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Hunter Biden, colossally corrupt. You almost can't say enough negative stuff about this, but this, this is the kind of stuff, somehow print does a decent job on this stuff, but... You don't see a lot about this on mainstream media, so like on TV. And that's a shame. And I think one of the reasons you don't is because it really just gives up the whole game and how the whole fucking system is a joke and how it's just a corrupt mess and a grab bag of corruption and there's legalized bribery everywhere. And as George Carlin famously said, there's a big club and you ain't in it. This is just such a great example of it right here. Listen, I think you guys know this. One of my maybe unpopular opinions, but I think it's become more popular over the years, is I think you should punish corruption sort of like it's murder. I think it should be very harsh punishments for it um, because they deserve it. I mean, this is the stuff that literally sells the country out to either foreign governments or corporations or billionaires. Like, this is the sort of stuff that destroys the fabric of the nation over time. And it's a great evidence of imperial decline over the years where you have these fail sons of elites – And this is the stuff that they're up to. And I don't think they lose a wink of sleep at night over it. I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror if I did shit like this. I think they're sleeping like babies. And they shouldn't be. Okay. So, uh, Yemen is the world's worst atrocity. And it's currently uh, ongoing. And... There's a famine there. There's a blockade from Saudi Arabia. There's indiscriminate bombing of civilians. They've bombed uh, open marketplaces. They've bombed mosques. They've bombed schools, civilian infrastructure. And um, this is something that got a little bit of coverage for a while, but now it's mysteriously disappeared. Now, why did it disappear? Well, Joe Biden famously came out and said, uh, we're not going to help Saudi Arabia anymore with offensive bombing. Now, notice the wording there. He added the word offensive, which means what? He's leaving the wiggle room to say we're going to help them with defensive bombing. Yeah, but what if none of the bombing is defensive? Well, they'll just call it defensive and help bomb. And that's the gist of it. And that's what they did. So great work here from uh, Adam Johnson on his substack. With Democrat back in White House, MSNBC returns to ignoring U.S.-backed war in Yemen Since Biden's election win on November 3rd, 2020, MSNBC hasn't done a single segment on the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Not a single segment on it. So what are the ones that came under Trump, the segments under Trump? Well, look at this. August 9th, 2018, Chris Hayes, dozens of children killed in school bus bombing in Yemen. Um, Day later, Velsian rule, an airstrike in Yemen struck a school bus killing children. Uh, Chris Hayes, 14 million people on brink of starvation in Yemen. Chris Hayes again, Trump boosts authoritarians as war rages in Yemen. Chris Hayes again, uh, Pompeo backs continuing U.S. role in war in Yemen. More from Chris Hayes, Senate advances bill to end support for war in Yemen. More with Chris Hayes, Chris Chris Murphy on what's at stake with vote on Yemen. More on Chris Hayes, Paul Ryan's cowardly act on Yemen. Andrea Mitchell, Bernie Sanders, this is from Bernie Sanders, Congress must determine U.S. involvement in Yemen crisis. Uh, Ali Velshi, Senate votes to end U.S. support for Saudi-led war in Yemen. So they did a number of segments on it, and, um, well, you would think now that the crisis is over. It's not over. It's not even close to over. People are still starving. There's still a famine. There's still bombings happening all the time. In fact, there was one that just happened, like, last week or so, and there's just no coverage of it now. Why? Well, back when Trump was in office, they got to talk about these atrocities and blame it on Trump. Now that Trump's out of office, they don't have anything to say. And in a weird way, there'd even be more to say about this right now. Why? Because of the fake posturing from Biden and because of the veneer he put up, this facade, this kabuki theater, where he pretended like we're not going to help with this atrocity anymore. And now he's continuing to help with the atrocities. So the media would have more of a reason to be like, hey, you said you wouldn't help and you're helping with it. Oh uh, yeah, but offensive and defensive weapons
4: and
1: there's a lot to call out there. If they haven't said a word. There's been like a couple passing references, but not not a single actual segment dedicated to it. Not on Chris Hayes, not from Ali Belshi, and those are nominally the best ones there. Um, not from anybody. Now listen, I'm not I'm not making this argument to make the point that they're worse because you see the same shit with the republicans. You know, there'll be a an issue that's terrible that they ignore under Trump and then the same fucking issue under Biden they're like, "Ah, look at this issue." So, uh, you know, th- there's equal opportunity hackery going on here, but there's no excuse for any of it. If you care about the issue, talk about the issue. If you care about the issue, try to fix the issue. And the left has been placated too. I haven't seen much from Any of the people, even the ones who led the charge, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Ro Khanna on the left, I haven't seen them really take it to Biden on this. So, again, you wonder why people get cynical about politics. You wonder why people become doomers and and nihilists. Look, I'm against the doomerism and the nihilism, but I sure as hell understand where the hell it comes from. And I don't blame those individuals because they're victims of the system as well. I blame the totally toothless and pathetic professional left and elected left, so-called left. It's their fault. You guys, whether it's the media or, or the politicians, you guys haven't delivered on Dickie McGee's act. And so, of course, people are going to feel nihilistic and, and like doomers because it's on you to do some shit. Now, again, you fight that urge as much as possible because it's not helpful and it's exactly what the establishment wants. But I sure as shit understand where it comes from. And this is just such a great example of it here. How many times you talked about it endlessly under Trump? Now, not a word about Yemen. Still a drought going on there. There's still a blockade. Children are starving. I'm sure COVID is rampant. People are dying. They're bombing civilian infrastructure, and nobody's saying anything. So anytime, I don't want to hear any posturing from the U.S. government or anybody about beacon of freedom and democracy, world police, whatever. We are actively facilitating the world's worst humanitarian crisis and dare I say the word, genocide. We are facilitating it. We're on the wrong side of it. Nobody's got anything to say about it, even on the so-called Left network. My ass cheeks left. They got nothing to say about it. Nothing. Biden's in office. Beyond pathetic. All right. Final story of the day, y'all. Story
2: of
6: the day, bitch.
2: Final story of the day.
1: Here we go. So this is um, something that I have been saying for a while that I'm now totally vindicated on. And there were times where I would say this where I would feel crazy because seemingly nobody agreed with me. But turns out I'm right. So this is from Scientific American. A person who has COVID can shed the coronavirus through their tears, sometimes long after they have recovered from the illness. And the virus may enter the body through... The eyes. That's the part that I've been telling people. And I've been saying it for a long time. Um, So it was always weird to me when we talk about, oh, my God, you have to mask up, you have to mask up, you have to mask up. And look, I was in favor of it, especially with no vaccine at, at the time. And, you know, it helps social distance masking up. It does help stop the spread of the virus massively, of course. I mean, Japan had their initial response to COVID was not a lockdown. It was like, just everybody wear masks. And for a long time, they did a lot better than everybody because everybody just wears masks. Um, Now, but, 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 I always thought, well, if a virus enters your body through your orifices, funny word, I know, um, we have two giant ones right here that if somebody coughs three feet away from me, okay, I might not breathe in if I'm wearing a mask or I might not breathe in enough to have a decent viral load. But it can get in my eyes, and I can get the virus through my eyes. And we know, as a matter of fact, we know that other viruses we can get through our eyes. Uh, Maybe not all of them, but some of them we definitely get through our eyes. And I had read one thing a while ago that said, like, yeah, we get viruses through our eyes. And I was like, so why isn't nobody talking about, look, I'm I'm so disgusted with our health authorities, and not only in this country, but in the world and in other countries. I'm disgusted with them because they don't – they never really covered all their bases or comprehensively came out with shit that was reasonable across the board. It always seemed like they were missing a bunch of shit or just guessing on some things and not telling you they're guessing or whatever. And you tell me, when has any of the U.S. authorities, world authorities, or anybody been like, hey, by the way, on top of wearing a mask, you might want to cover your eyes with whatever, sunglasses, regular glasses – goggles, whatever the fuck, because the virus can get in your eyes, too. I didn't hear anybody say that shit. Anybody. Even when I had read one article a while ago that was like, yeah, might, COVID might get into your eyes. So now, by the way, how do we know this? I'm, I'm bearing the lead here a little bit. but um, So there was a study of uh, rhesus monkeys where they tested to see whether or not you can contract COVID through the eyes, and they contracted COVID through their eyes. Okay. Now, you can say, well, Kyle, that's just rhesus monkeys. Well, the reason they picked those is because they're close enough to humans where there's probably – what can happen to them can happen to us, but there's more. Apparently over 10% of people who have COVID have eye symptoms. I didn't even know that. So in other words, you might get conjunctivitis, pink eye is one thing. You might have other visual issues that pop up. Um, And yeah, the people who are dealing with this, they contracted the virus through their eye, most likely, hence the eye irritation. So it's it's just astonishing. So yes, masks generally help limit the spread of the virus. That's a fact. There's been a number of studies that looked into that. Um, But it's only so effective if, like, you're wearing the mask and you don't have some sort of covering of your eyes. Now, my recommendation to you guys, um, assuming you're not vaccinated or whatever, but, and early on in the pandemic, I definitely would have said this. Get yourself a, a pair of either sunglasses or just the glasses that are are like regular glasses, but they're just non-prescription, basically. Because that would have helped. You know, I think that would have helped a lot of people. And you sort of understand now, like, oh, why is it that, you know, math didn't appear to be more effective? Well, this might be one of the reasons why. Now, again, to be fair, they say only – it's over 10% of people who have COVID eye symptoms. So I don't know if all of the people who contracted it through their eyes – have eye symptoms. My guess is maybe some of them contracted it through their eyes and they just didn't have eye symptoms. Because the same thing could happen if you contract the virus you know, through your, your nose, it's not like you're guaranteed to have sinus issues. You know what I mean? So, and some people contract it through their mouth and they don't, some just never develop any sort of throat symptoms or mouth symptoms and they may be asymptomatic even after getting it through their mouth. So it's not like, I don't think there's a direct correlation between the eye problem and therefore it must have come through the eye. Or if you don't have eye problems, there's no way it came through your eye. It's possible it does, but I, don't, I can't even guess a percentage of what, what, what number of people contracted through their eyes. But we know you can do that. And they, at this late-ass day in the pandemic, the one article in Scientific American brings it up. I mean, you're not going to see anything from the World Health Organization. You're not going to see anything from any of the uh, health officials in the U.S. And it's like, you're, you realize in real time how colossally incompetent everybody fucking is. Everybody. This is something we should have known in like week one, month one, if I'm being kind sometime within year one, but nobody really talked about it. so and I'm the one who felt crazy when I would tell people like, "Yeah, we're covering our mouth, but maybe get in through your eyes too, and wait, little cherry on top for the end of this conversation. there's a chance you can get it through your ears too. Oh, uh, uh, uh. oh God, all right, whatever. Anyway, just get vaccinated. This study came out of France. Over 20 million people tested. If you get vaccinated, it's a 90% reduction in severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So if you get vaxxed, you should be okay. If not, you probably have to cover every orifice. So it's gonna come a time where you might have to wear a butt plug when you're out in public if you're not vaccinated. Learned it here first. I'm just kidding about that last part, but anyway. You get the gist. COVID can come in through your eyes. It's crazy to me that nobody really talks about this at any point throughout this pandemic. All right, guys, we're done. I love you, baby. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.